Welcome to From Rewatch with Love, a James Bond cinematic rewatch podcast. My name is Graham Stark. Joining me, as always, is Matt Wiggins. Hello! And today we are looking at the 2015 James Bond film, Spectre, which I was going to say is the longest Bond film so far, but we actually already know how long No Time to Die is. Oh. And it's longer. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. Spectre clocks in at two hours 28 minutes thereabouts Mm -hmm. and apparently no time to die is expected to be two hours 43 minutes woof (laughs) yeah woof (laughs) indeed i'm not one who gets like particularly bent out of shape about long movies no me neither but that's a lot (laughs) yeah can't wait for the extended edition on blu-ray yeah no doubt actually Because of how the box sets that you and I both own shook out, I don't have this on disc. And so I was going to order it because I do a lot of watching of the special features. And I read a Blu-ray review of the Spectre release. And apparently it just honks. Like the (laughs) special features are almost inconsequential in their brevity. Yeah. I did own this on Blu-ray or still do. But I realized that I'd never redeemed my digital code and the digital code redeemed into a 4K version on iTunes <laughs> Dang, versus nice. the Blu-ray. So I was like, all right, let's watch the digital version. Yeah, not bad. It didn't appear to make any difference. Oh. <laughs> it was still Theoretically, Spectre. it was HDR, I guess. But oh, uh, Fair enough. Before we get into talking about Spectre, just wanted to mention that this is episode 26 of From Rewatch with Love, which is the last episode for some time. Uh, Originally, the plan was that we were going to release these episodes up to the release of No Time to Die, and then we would do an episode for No Time to Die. And even though we were slightly delayed on that particular schedule, it worked out okay in that regard, because of course, No Time to Die got delayed until at least April of next year at time of recording. So currently, this is the last episode until eventually No Time to Die comes out and we will do an episode on that. As we've teased a couple times, some people have asked if we want to take a look at the video games and that could maybe be fun. Some people have suggested doing sort of Bond parody movies and that could be fun as well. But frankly, you know, doing one of these a week for 26 weeks, we need to take a break from it. And (laughs) There are no plans to do anything at this time, except an episode on No Time to Die whenever that releases. But this has been an absolute blast. Thank you all for joining us and for getting into involved discussions in the YouTube comments or on the Loading Ready Run Discord. It's been very interesting to see basically just sort of how the breadth of opinion is. Mm -hmm. In every one of the special features that I have watched, directors of these movies always talk about how when their friends hear that they're directing a Bond film, they tell them, oh, if you're doing a Bond film, it has to have this, and it's always different things. (laughs) That doesn't surprise me. (laughs) It's got to have gadgets. He's got to sleep with all the women. It's got to have skiing stunts. It's got to have explosions. It's got to have, you know. And a lot of what we've been talking about over the course of this podcast is sort of, you know, what makes a Bond movie to us? Mm -hmm. Where does it fall in that sort of realm you know when we talked about how much we both enjoyed license to kill but that it didn't necessarily feel like a bond film in places despite how much Mm -hmm. we liked it and we did like it 
people who, <laughs> who that's the only kind of comment that has really bothered me is people being like, man, I don't know why you guys hated the song for Casino Royale so much. And I'm like, we didn't. We said we liked it. We spoke with our mouths that we enjoyed that song. <laughs> I think it is what you said a last episode or a couple episodes ago that if you look at our rankings as a linear gradient of best to worst then maybe that looks bad, but that's not how we've been ranking them. So, right. Anyway. Interestingly, so on the topic of our rankings, I was curious. We'll get to this later, but somebody on the Discord actually asked if there was a categorization of the Bond theme songs based on our rankings of them as delineated into the Belter, Ballad, and Banger categories. So I did that. <laughs> I went through and mm -hmm. I was like, all right, what are all the bangers? What are all the ballads and what are all the belters? And then I just color coded them on our ranking list to have a look. No surprise to me whatsoever. A song fitting into the banger category is strongly, strongly predictive of how much you like it. Mm -hmm. You specifically. Yeah, yep, that doesn't um, surprise and me. It, it being a ballad is strongly, strongly predictive of how much you dislike it, relatively yep. speaking. Yep. You do not have a single ballad in your top half. Yeah. Not even one. Only one banger in your bottom half, which is Die Another Day. <laughs> I was a little bit more forgiving of ballads. In fact, the distribution for me is a little more even. Again, bangers at the top of my list. Those are the, the big ones for me. But belters have a wider distribution through my list. I have one ballad that rates higher than your highest. So my, my distribution of ballads is a little bit more spread. I just think that the song should take its energy from the movie as a whole and a Bond film should not be down-tempo and maudlin. Yes, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think, <laughs> I think one of the big things that is important in a Bond theme song is that it primes you for the adventure to come, right? Mm -hmm. Like it should be, all right, we've just seen this great action sequence to, to get the movie started. We've got the hook for the film. And now it's like, all right, now we have a theme song about how incredibly badass James Bond is. And, you know, here are sexy women and guns and excitement and energy and like get yourself ready to have yourself blown back in your seat by how awesome the fantasy you're about to embark on is. And so, like, that definitely guides my impression of these theme songs as well. Yeah, and I guess you could take that as a spoiler for what I'm going to make of this particular theme song. <laughs> but before we get into the theme song, we should talk a little bit more about the movie. 2015 for the highest budget of a Bond film yet, about $300 million. That's even with the inflation adjustment. Still, though, very successful, nearly $900 million worldwide. So not quite as high as Skyfall, but still very, very good. Sam Mendes returning to direct. The production was trying to get Christopher Nolan. I heard about that. Up until Sam Mendes agreed to return. So I don't know if that was ever, you never know how much truth there is in these stories. Like, sure, the production 
would have liked to get Christopher Nolan. Was that ever a remotely feasible thing that could have happened? Perhaps. But like, were they even talking? Who knows, right? And like, when was the reporting done, right? Like, yeah. who knows? Maybe they were trying to negotiate in the press or drive interest in the press by being like, we'd love to have Christopher Nolan do this and getting it out on like Hollywood Reporter so that his agent will give them a call. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Sam Mendes did indeed return. And he and screenwriter John Logan, who had also worked on Skyfall, came up with the main concept of the plot and everything. And then Neil Purvis and Robert Wade were brought back on because originally they weren't going to be involved. They were brought back to do a rewrite of the screenplay because Mendez and the producers and Daniel Craig were not totally satisfied with what John Logan had turned in. The movie also credits Jez Butterworth as doing a (laughs) rewrite on the, sorry, I just love the name, Jez Butterworth as doing a rewrite pass on the movie as well, who, among other things, did the screenplay for Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. The Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt movie that in some places was released as Live, Die, Repeat. Right. That was originally the tagline for Edge of Tomorrow, but then in some markets, they just released it as Live, Die, Repeat. Anyway, the point is, I mentioned that only because they're working on a sequel called Live, Die, Repeat and Repeat. Oh, nice. (laughs) <laughs> actually looking at this guy's film credits he's worked on a few actually good movies edge of tomorrow was great and if you haven't seen it you should ford versus ferrari also is really good <laughs> yeah he wrote get on up the chadwick boseman james brown biopic oh yeah yeah he wrote black mass anyway yeah he's written written some stuff but maybe that's too many writers let's see how this goes <laughs> I don't actually know what else there is really to talk about ahead of time before we get into it, because it is a long movie. So. Yeah, I mean, why don't we just dive right in? We can just talk about it as it, as stuff comes up. We'll probably have lots to talk about at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, it opens up with the little circle moving across the screen and the gun barrel. We'll get an actual normal gun barrel sequence. Weirdly, the gun barrel has gone back to being a still image instead of the reflections that they did in the earlier Brosnan ones. Yeah. But we get a gun barrel sequence. It doesn't do the iris moving around thing. It just fades totally to black. Mm -hmm. And then the text appears on screen. The dead are alive. And that's, I guess, a theme I guess that's the movie sort of laying out the ultimate reveal, the twist, I suppose. Yep, I guess. But it's kind of also operating on a meta level that I guess we will talk about, gosh, much later in this movie. And then we go to Mexico and it's the Day of the Dead parade. You know that they always have in Mexico City. So this is obviously one of the pieces of trivia that a lot of people who have a passing interest in James Bond trivia know and like to pass around. And to be fair, I love this as well. Mexico City doesn't have a Day of the Dead parade. (laughs) Asterisk. This is a complete fabrication. Right. Like previously, we've seen them go to Carnival or the Junkanoo or the medieval horse race from Quantum of Solace, where they will make a point of going outside of their normal principal photography to film this all happening and then incorporate that into the thing. This total fabrication. They were like, Day of the Dead, Parade, Mexico City. Awesome. Mexico City is like, that's not a thing. And they're like, well, I guess we'll just make one with like (laughs) thousands of extras. But then here's the asterisk. Mexico City went, that looks sick that's awesome we should do that (laughs) why weren't we doing this why weren't we doing that because parades are not like a part of the day of the dead thing but now they do that (laughs) literally it's a tradition that now happens because of this movie because it's great for tourism if nothing else yeah no doubt 
That's awesome. I mean, it looks rad, right? It's, like this uh, whole looks sequence looks amazing. I only wish that this whole sequence didn't suffer so greatly under the weight of Hollywood Mexican because mm. the color grading on this entire sequence is so yellow. Yeah. And I noticed not just this sequence, a lot of this movie is really yellow and in places that it doesn't even make sense. It weirded me out how oddly color graded this movie is. And I would have loved to see this sequence with true life color grading. It would have been so colorful and wonderful, you know, yeah. but it's just sort of yellow, which is a shame because yeah. it looks like so much fun. Yeah, it ends up just feeling really washed out. Yeah. But we also get something that I absolutely love, which is a oneer. <laughs> Yeah, and it goes on forever. I actually just noted the time code down so that I can see how long this uh, this was. A oneer or a long take or a single take shot is where the camera doesn't cut. It doesn't cut away. We follow a movement typically through different scenes with different focal points without an obvious camera cut. Generally speaking, when you see these things in movies, there are actually hidden cuts. It's not super difficult to guess where they are in the course of this one. I think there's three or maybe even four, but it's not glaringly obvious. And it does create this really cool effect of just watching this scene go on for some time. Yeah. Forgetting what happened in this scene, because I haven't seen this since theaters, I was immediately drawn to a character standing not quite at center, slightly to the side, dressed like Baron Samity, and at least that he's wearing a top hat and he's otherwise skeletal. And I was like, oh, cool. Hey, they got someone kind of dressed like Baron Samity in a top hat. Neat. And then the camera ignores them and goes about its business, continuing to watch the parade. And eventually the camera will wheel back around and that's Bond. Yeah. I love that even in the wide shot at the beginning, your eye is drawn to this person, largely because they're like the only one not moving. Right. Yes. Yeah. Because everybody else is sort of walking. The camera focuses on a guy walking in the opposite, like a against the flow of the, the parade. Mm hmm. But your eye is still drawn to this man in the top hat because mm -hmm. he's not moving. So, yeah, we follow this other guy wearing an all white suit and wearing a skull mask. And he passes by the man in the top hat who's also wearing a skull mask and has a woman on his arm as he gets closer and closer to the camera. And we get a good look at his eyes. We presume that this is indeed James Bond. We follow them. They go inside a hotel. And this is an extended, as I said, one shot sequence. They go into the hotel. They go into an elevator. They ride up to her room. They start to get undressed. She gets on the bed and looks over to where he is standing in the far side of the room and goes, wait, where are you going? And the camera whips around and Bond is now completely taken off his Day of the Dead disguise, <laughs> is wearing a suit underneath and has a gun that he got from somewhere and says, I'm just stepping out for a minute. I'll be right back and climbs out the balcony and starts walking along <laughs> the edge of the roof with this parade all visible down in the background behind him one of my favorite details about the parade in the like being visible in the background is that the float of the skeleton with the rays on its head which we mm -hmm. saw bond walk by as he enters the hotel is now visible on the street having passed the hotel yes very very good continuity of parade floats i noticed that as well <laughs> <laughs> he makes his way down some convenient stairs made of various air conditioning units and air returns and stuff and walks along the roofs as we see more and more festival goers down below the shot finally cuts when he lines up his gun which seems to have a directional microphone on it at an apartment across the street from the building that he is on top of right and so it ran about three minutes and 40 seconds 
That's good. It is good. It's no Children of Men, but it's very good. Well, okay, so it's funny you say Children of Men, because Sam Mendes, of course, this year released 1917, the whole hook of which is it is a World War One war movie told in a single take. And it's right. it's not perfectly a single take, and it does hide cuts throughout it. And there, there are a couple of hard cuts sort of intentionally built into the movie for dramatic effect, but that, of course, was the, the entire hook of that film. And this feels a little bit like some of the stuff that he's doing here feels a little bit like a prototype for some of the things he would want to do in that. Mm. Of course, that would also be shot by Roger Deakins, who we talked about from Skyfall. Right. Whereas this movie... No slouch either, Hote Van Hotema, who has shot, among other things, both Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Tenet for Christopher Nolan. Her for Spike Jones, The Fighter for David O. Russell, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy for <laughs> Thomas Alfredson. That's that's quite the resume. <laughs> yeah, he's done some good stuff too. Yeah. He has also received many awards nominations, but not enough to warrant their own Wikipedia article. Alas. <laughs> He did win a smattering of stuff for Dunkirk, though. So my only complaint about yeah. the, the choice to do this one long take mm -hmm. to open the movie with is that they didn't commit to the bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if the entire, I mean, the stunts that they proceed into would have rendered it impossible, but it would have been really neat if they had found a way to actually do the entire pre-title as one single shot for the whole thing. It would have obviously had to have like been very different from what it ended up being. But like having a one three three and a half minute shot and then cutting away and just sort of letting it die <laughs> feels like a lack of commitment to the bit. Mm -hmm. So Bond is sighting up with this gun, which inexplicably has a blue laser sight on it. In fact, this will be a big problem in a few minutes. <laughs> but before he takes the shot, he decides to actually listen in to what these guys are saying. And they're discussing some stuff. He notices that the guy that he was watching with the white suit shows off something on his hand. He has this ring that he shows off. And that is sort of the like identification for the other people to listen to him. The character's name is Skiara and he is an assassin. We will find out. So he listens in to the conversation. They're planning a terrorist attack, but eventually Bond decides he's heard enough and it's time to take this guy out. The two of them raise their glasses at one another as Bond is taking aim and Skiara, who is smoking, exhales, putting a puff of smoke in the air between the two of them. Through the smoke, they notice his laser sight, realize something is up and Bond shoots the man he's talking to and another guard in the same room and tries to hit Skiara but misses, allowing him to just run out of the apartment before Bond hits the briefcase with whatever kind of explosive, whatever kind of grotesquely unstable explosive they were <laughs> planning on using to blow up the stadium. And it causes a massive explosion in this apartment, which also sends a crack running up the building and the front face of the apartment building falls off and falls down onto the building that Bond is on and Bond almost falls through the floor, but does manage to eventually safely land several stories below on a couch, which is actually kind of a- It's so good. <laughs> it's a surprisingly fun little Bond action scene comedy moment, the yeah. like of which we have not seen in some time. I think that little bit works gangbusters because he's like holding onto a lighting fixture before he falls and then it breaks off and he falls lands on the couch looks completely 
He looks as surprised as we are that he's escaped this unharmed, realizes he's still holding on to the now broken light fixture and just is like, what am I doing? And throws it away, sort of fixes his suit and gets up and walks out the door. It plays so well. And Daniel Craig sells it really well. Mm -hmm. Bond heads outside this building and sees that Skiara has somehow survived that explosion. And we then engage in a foot chase through all those extras that we saw previously, those thousands of extras. So they tear up the street, up the parade, eventually making it to a massive square. Skiara has gotten on a cell phone and is basically calling for an emergency evacuation. So a helicopter lands in the square. A man rushes out to help him. Bond knocks that guy out and jumps in the helicopter just as it's taking off. And now we engage in Bond hilariously endangering thousands of civilians by... (laughs) attacking the pilot of a helicopter over top of a square full of people. Holy crap, this could have gone so badly. And almost does on several occasions. Yeah, we're not quite at Man of Steel level of endangering the city, but this was (laughs) very close to the mark. He and Skiara engage in a hand-to-hand fight in the helicopter, out on the skids of the helicopter, holding desperately onto the helicopter while the pilot is trying to regain control of the helicopter. I I don't love how this is edited. It's very, very quick, rapid cuts, sort of by necessity, but there's just a lot of really fast editing back and forth that I could have done without, considering how cool a lot of the stunts actually are. Yeah. You know, you can do a barrel roll in a helicopter, (laughs) or maybe it's an aileron roll. They don't have ailerons, but (laughs) they roll the helicopter. They do. And like, I I get what you mean in terms of the editing. One of my big frustrations with this particular action set piece is the way that the framing and the cutting of the shots undercut a fair bit of the cool stunt work. Yeah, They rolled the helicopter. Show us the helicopter rolling. (laughs) Instead, we get the helicopter going, going upside down. We do get one instance of it going upside down, but it also goes into a loop later in this and the way it's framed in the camera we lose all sense of perspective for the ground it's just the helicopter framed against the sky and it just is like okay so you rotated the camera right because i have no perspective for where the ground is clearly you didn't actually loop the helicopter and it just that sort of thing bugs me it makes it actually tougher to believe the stunt i want to know that the helicopter did that and to do that i need some perspective for the the horizon (laughs) (laughs) to know that the helicopter actually did the thing it feel it feels like a stunt straight out of like dr no oh we have this cool idea for bond on a helicopter and we'll flip the camera to make the stunt happen right we'll get connery on the rear projection screen yeah that bugs me in this sequence but like the idea is cool (laughs) even if the execution is not 100 percent yeah The end result is that Bond manages to tear that ring off of Skiara's finger before just booting him completely out of the helicopter and then engaging in further fighting with the pilot, whomst he also boots out of the helicopter (laughs) after it stalls almost, which I guess is a thing you can do to a helicopter. Oh, definitely. Then Bond, at the last moment, manages to take control and not crash the helicopter into a crowd full of people and flies away. And he inspects his winnings, I don't know, the the fruits of his labor, which is that ring. And then it sort of seamlessly transitions from the ring into the opening title sequence. This is also quite a long pre-title sequence. Yeah, it's about 12 minutes. Yeah, which is, it feels unusual. How long was the one in uh, in The World Is Not Enough? Oh, the really long one that they reshot, or not reshot, yeah. but that they tacked the other thing onto? 
Yeah, that one was about 13 and a half, almost 14. 14 minutes, actually. Yeah, so that would have been about a minute, minute and a half longer than this one. Yeah, ultimately fun. Would have liked some better editing on the helicopter bits, but ultimately solid pre-title sequence. I'm in. Yeah, it's good. Truth be told, I'm going to say that about a lot of this film. Okay, let me get this out of the way right now, because we didn't talk about it before we started doing the recap. I came into this remembering that I really didn't like it. And I was sitting there watching this movie last night going, why didn't I like this? <laughs> because this seems pretty great. And then a couple things in like the last half hour happened. And I was like, oh, that's why. Yeah. Because <laughs> the rest of it is great. Yeah. The first two acts of this movie... No problem at all. There will be quibbles, but by and large, the first two thirds of this film are fine. <laughs> yeah, but I remembered being so, so down on this movie. And I guess it was just because I kind of left the theater with a sour taste in my mouth after a bunch of twisty reveals at the end. Mm -hmm. And and we'll get into those. Like, I, I do not want to get into those until we get to them. Yeah. But this film's temporal proximity in release to a few things that are now further in our like rearview mirrors exacerbated the problems at the end. But mm. I intend to talk about them when we get there. So we'll we'll leave it until we get there. But I too had really negative opinion of this movie coming in. And I don't think I'm going to be as hard on it as I expected to be. Same. Based solely on the fact that the problems that I had with it and had articulated in the past, they don't feel quite as relevant. They're still problems, but they don't feel quite as like poisonous to the film now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about that later. Yeah. The next thing is, of course, the opening titles. As we look at the ring and the octopus imagery on the ring, and it transitions into... The opening title sequence once again daniel kleinman is back doing the opening titles definitely a lot of strong imagery i don't think it's quite as focused as skyfall no they get a lot of mileage out of the octopus there's some pretty like hey i've seen that anime moments i was just of... gonna make that joke <laughs> i was rolling it over in my head i'm like is that joke too far <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's women having sex with octopus tentacles. It's it's yeah. like, yeah. It's, it sure is something. I don't love the bits where it shows clips of previous Daniel Craig Bond films. Nope. More on that later. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing is set to the song Writings on the Wall, performed by Sam Smith. I mean, you sort of uh -huh. previewed this earlier when you were looking at how I, generally speaking rate ballads on this particular list because this definitely falls into the ballad category yes i would i definitely did classify it that way it's it's like almost a belter in places got such a like almost breathy voice at the best of times that it never really hits the the sort of like intense highs that i categorize belters as having so yes it's a ballad for sure <laughs> it's a ballad leaning into dirge almost yeah i don't love it no. Shockingly. No, neither do I. I think the visuals are fine. The song leaves me totally cold. Mm -hmm. You know who it didn't leave totally cold, though? Oh? The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Oh, right. <laughs> this song won Best Original Song in the, uh, the Oscars that year. For whatever it's worth, I have not heard of any of the songs it beat. <laughs> what else was nominated that year? Earned It. 
from Fifty Shades of Grey, music and lyrics by Ahmad Balshi, Stephen Mokyo, Jason Dehila, Queenville, and Abel Tesfe. Okay. Manta Ray from Racing Extinction, music by J. Ralph, lyrics by Anoni. Okay. Simple Song Number 3 from Youth, music and lyrics by David Lang, and Till It Happens to You from The Hunting Ground, music and lyrics by Lady Gaga and Diane Warren. All right. I, too, have never heard any of those songs. The fact that we have not heard of those songs is not like a dig on writings on the wall. I don't particularly care for it, but congratulations to Jimmy Napes and Sam Smith for their Academy Award for the song. Mm -hmm. But it's not my favorite. No. I think your classification of it as ballad hinging on dirge is is (laughs) like legit. I think the energy is way too low. Like, it's just, it's sluggish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for as slow as it is it's too long it just doesn't have any thrust to it at all in the same way as oh i don't even remember what movie it was but i've commented in the past that, like we you know we exit this awesome opening pre-title sequence and then all of the energy is sucked out of the room yeah and it's like they did it again <laughs> it just like the whole movie just slows to a crawl and we're not far enough into the movie to need like a breath yet right like we're just on the appetizer course and it's like all right now everybody just sit here for 20 minutes while we get the main course ready well luckily m has a full course of newspapers for bond (laughs) as we exit the main title sequence into m once again played by ray fines presenting bond with a selection of newspapers from around the world all talking about this massive thing that happened in mexico city that he was responsible for and he's basically like what the hell were you doing you weren't even on assignment what were you doing bond was saying that he was just happened to be on holiday taking a long overdue vacation and stumbled across this guy planning to blow up a stadium so kind of felt like he had to do something about it and m tells him that he's grounded but not like not like a child like as in you can't fly like you're not on any active cases you can't leave you you stay in london go to your room no tv yeah because now (laughs) m has to explain to a different government official what the hell just happened he's particularly incensed in this case because as the craig era bond movies are obsessed with they once again are asking the question of like what is the relevancy of an on-the-ground spy is there a place for a double o like james bond in this modern world uh, a question which they answered in the previous film but uh, they're they're asking it once again because and this is why m is so incensed at this point in the film we learn that the government is in the process of merging mi5 and mi6 And in the context of that merger, MI5 represents the digital surveillance apparatus of the UK, and MI6 represents the physical espionage apparatus. And apparently the government is looking for a reason to shut MI6 down. And Bond's little foray into vigilantism has given them yet another piece of ammunition to use against MI6 in the effort to eliminate the double O program in favor of a digital surveillance operation. The head of that new Joint Intelligence Committee, a man by the name of Max Denby, joins them at that point, introduces himself because he'll be the head of the Committee for National Surveillance. Is that what CNS stands for? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) anyway so bond says well i guess that makes you c then as in because m and then c and he says no my name's just it's max and bond's like no i'm gonna call you c bond is not friendly to this guy 
No. The actor here is Andrew Scott. Played Moriarty on Sherlock. Yes, who played Moriarty on, yeah, the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock. <laughs> to narrow mm-hmm. that down, there's been a lot of Sherlocks, <laughs> you see. He's also the voice of Obake in the Big Hero 6 TV series. Okay. He plays the priest in Fleabag. He's the narrator for School of Roars. I don't know what that is, but he's done 56 episodes of it. Oh, wow. He plays Tom Ripley in the upcoming TV series Ripley. So that sounds like the lead. (laughs) It does sound like the lead, doesn't it? And if you go way back to 1998, he played Soldier on the Beach in Saving Private Ryan. (laughs) Good for him. Did he play an intact soldier on the beach or just a part of a soldier on the beach? Who can say? In this scene, he only barely gives off the vibe that he's a little bit evil, but that sort of gets cranked up over the course of the movie. Yeah, I do appreciate that after Bond calls him C, literally everyone else associated with MI6 calls him C for the rest of the film. Yeah, everyone is just like, (laughs) yep, all right, we're on board, let's do it. Like, he's like, please don't call me that. And Bond's like, "Mm, no, I think you're a bit of a C. So as Bond is leaving, because he, of course he's been told to go to his room, he's approached by Moneypenny, who has a box that has finally been released of personal effects from Skyfall. Because remember, these are all in very hard continuity. And he says, great, you can bring it to me in person later at my place, 8 o'clock. Goodbye. So later at his place, which is very, very Spartan, Moneypenny is like, did you just move in? Have you not like unpacked yet? Like pictures aren't on the wall. His TV is on the floor. I imagine he doesn't spend a lot of time in his apartment. Seems likely. He doesn't appear to even own many personal effects, right? Like, no. the, he doesn't have boxes that are many boxes that are as yet unpacked. Yeah. Money Penny asks him, so look, what were you doing in Mexico? Like, what, what is what is all of this? He doesn't care about the stuff from Skyfall. He's like, cool, thanks, and just chucks it. And she's like, okay, why am I here? What's going on? And he hits play on this recording on the television, and it's... M, it's Judy Dench as M, still appearing in this movie. This is new footage for this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is Judy Dench cameo. Or when you have Judy Dench, you use Judy Dench. <laughs> yeah. So she has a message specifically for Bond to be brought to him in the event of her death, which is what's happened. She tells him to kill Skiara, who he did, that was the guy in Mexico, and go to his funeral and see who shows up. And like, that's it. She's like, you have to do this. Is it ever explained what M knows or why? Not not really. No, it isn't. The extent we get, like, he does turn up some interesting leads at the funeral when we get there, but I don't think it ever comes back around to, like, why. It, literally two movies ago, M didn't know secret organizations existed. <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe she's been doing her homework? It seems like she knows more than she's telling Bond even now. Yeah. And it's like, you're dead. Lay it on the table. What are they going to do to you? You're dead. (laughs) Well, the movie has to preserve its questions for third act reveals. We can't just have information that's relevant to the plot delivered to us up front. It's not that. It's that it's never resolved. (laughs) You're right. It isn't. This is a thing that he's doing for M, for the previous M, and this is why he's doing it. You know, there's no other reason. He's like, I have to do this because I got this message from M, and she says this, so there must be something to it. It turns out that there is, and he follows through, and there is something to it, but there's no resolution for why M told him to do this. Right, because it's just a plot hook, and any reason they would have is potentially giving away the reveal that they're trying to preserve for later in the movie. 
Because if she's like, go to this funeral and you will find this guy and this guy and this guy turn up and they're all, there's a connection there and you should follow through on that. That potentially gives away more than I think the writers are wanting to give away at this point. And then they they just drop it. They never come back to it. I'm not, I'm not defending it. I'm saying this is a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that it would have been no, no, I got that. better in service of the movie if they had just laid their cards out up front and been like, here's what the story of this movie is. Dive in. Yeah, but that doesn't happen. And Bond asks Moneypenny for help, like off the books. He's like, can you look some stuff up for me? And she's like, well, why do you think that you can trust me? And he's like, mm, instinct. And then we just cut to hard cut to her outside the window walking away. So you don't actually know sort of how that all got resolved. Now, the one major problem facing Bond at the end of this conversation is that the funeral is in Rome and Bond has been told that he's not allowed to leave London. Right. Before he goes to deal with that, he does briefly poke through the box of stuff from Skyfall, some of which is partially burned. And he turns up a order of temporary guardianship of him to a man named Hans Oberhauser who is actually a character from the novels, I discovered, who is indeed someone who became a temporary guardian of James Bond after he was orphaned and who, like, taught him how to ski and mountain climb, which is also true of the character in this movie. Not that we ever see Hans Oberhauser. Right. And Bond finds a partially burned picture of Hans Oberhauser and a very young himself and a third figure in the photo who can't be recognized because that part of the photograph is burned. So is it just me or does this photograph look really fake? Yeah, it's a painting. Like, it's obviously a painting, right? Yeah. Like, it's very weirdly a painting. Yeah. <laughs> I have never been clear watching this movie if it is somebody digitally painted their best facsimile of a photograph and just tried to make it look like an old weathered photograph so that it was convincing enough for the movie. And spoilers, it's not. Or if it is intended to be a photograph of a painting. Because... <laughs> For all intents and purposes, it should just be a photo, right? Like, it should just be a 40-year-old photo that he's looking at. Yeah. But it it looks really painted and not in a, like, oh, it's just an old weathered photograph way, but it just looks extremely artificial. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a gripe. <laughs> if you're looking for a timeline, by the way, apparently that guardianship began of a 12-year-old James Bond began in 1983. In the context of this film? By pausing the movie and reading. Oh, okay. So you can figure out how old Bond is meant to be in the context of this era of films. Right. Cut to Bond and Tanner riding a boat down the Thames as they pass by the still exploded MI6 building at Vauxhall Cross after the events of Skyfall. And Tanner says the absolutely ludicrous thing of they decided it was cheaper to tear it down than rebuild it, which cannot be true. <laughs> Fundamentally, most of the building is not that damaged. I guess... I guess, like, if they have plans to not use it anymore and they can redevelop the property and sell it for profit, maybe, maybe well, they get more money out of it. But you're right. It, it's, I guess. If it's still a functional building and all they have to do is patch up the offices that got exploded. Tanner tells him that because of this merger, they're just sort of looping everything into this new other building on the other side of the Thames that, that they look at. It has a big CNS logo on it because that's the thing that C is in charge of. Tanner also does not like C very much. So Q doesn't like the new building and so has set up space in a different series of underground tunnels. <laughs> Bond is going to queue for a medical examination, but what it actually is, is injecting Bond with smart blood. It's so silly. It's very Metal Gear Solid 2. It is. Nanomachines. 
I love that it that injecting him with smart blood uses exactly the same process and basically the same joke as injecting him with the tracking device in Casino Royale. <laughs> I noticed that too. It's like the same thing. Yeah, that like it's. I think it's a new prop, but it functions basically exactly the same way. So basically, it's nano machines in his blood that can let Q track him. And Bond's like, "Cool." Well, thanks for that. That sounds great. And Q then takes him to show him the brand new Aston Martin DB10, which was going to be for him, but is actually going to be for 009 because 007 has been grounded. And it's this like really mean bait and switch. It is. He's like, check it out. Isn't that cool? Yeah, you don't get it. You can have this watch, though. Yes, he gives him a watch and he does give him this. Q does give Bond this. He's like, what does the watch do? Well, it tells time. And Bond says... Great, this was M's idea, wasn't it? Yes, indeed it was. Although, the alarm is quite loud, if you catch my meaning. Which tells Bond just enough that Q is willing to, like, get on side. Like, Q, Tanner, and Bond have this little sort of connection after the events of Skyfall, which I like. Mm -hmm. And Bond is like, hey, look, I need your help. I'm doing something. It's important. I have to be able to leave town. Q is like, look, I have a career and two cats to feed, and I can't be doing this. And Bond is like, please, I'm telling you. And so eventually Q is like, well, the smart blood can sometimes take a little while to establish a proper connection, you know, sometimes up to 24, and Bond gives him a look, or even 48 hours. <laughs> so there's some leeway there. So make sure you don't leave town until then. <laughs> Or something like that, you know. Yeah, make sure you're back in town by, by then. You'll be on the grid yeah. after 48 hours. Then Bond also somehow steals the car. Oh, wait, wait, actually before that. Also in Q's shop is the body chassis of the Aston Martin DB5 that got blown up in Skyfall. And Q makes himself laugh with a little joke of like, I normally ask you to bring things back in one piece, not bring back one piece. <laughs> I like that joke. I do too. <laughs> I like I'm sort of I'm sort of middling. I like Ben Wishaw quite a lot in a lot of things he's in, but I I like I'm a little middling on what they've decided to do with Q in these movies, but I like that bit. I find that he's quite endearing in this film and mm -hmm. that the relationship between him and Bond is relatively well sketched out in this movie. It has a different flavor from the sort of classic Bond Q relationship, but it's not a bad flavor. It's just a different flavor. <laughs> yeah. Well, even though that one's not drivable, Bond will shortly steal the other car. Not in this <laughs> scene. He leaves in this scene and we get a little bit of Money Penny receiving flowers and a gift from Bond. It just says like, thank you, signed J, and it's a cell phone. And M is like, oh, what's 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 this? Is it like your birthday or something? And she's like, no, 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 just a you know secret admirer. And he goes, oh, yeah, all right, cool. And it goes into his office and she comments to herself, birthday was last week <laughs> so in addition to his success as being m you know maybe interpersonal office relationships not his strongest suit yeah but then we get a small cutaway of q going to prep the db10 for 009 who's there to pick it up he finds that the car is missing and there is a bottle of bollinger on ice sitting in the garage and he curses how screwed so hold on yeah <laughs> a how screwed is 009 in this context oh yeah Good point. <laughs> and two, 009 shows up to pick up the DB10. The DB10 is not there. Yeah. How does Q cover for this? Or when Q contacts M and is like, immediately, like that minute, <laughs> and is like, Q, 
doesn't have the DB10. Presumably it never gets to that point. Presumably Q is like, oh, something wrong with it. Sorry, won't be able to get it to you today. Terribly sorry. You know, hilarious issues. Goodbye. <laughs> Meanwhile, like a foreign ambassador is assassinated that evening because 009 couldn't make it there in time. Yeah. Sorry, car trouble. Bummer. <laughs> the DB10, by the way, if you're curious, is a car that functionally doesn't exist. They made literally 10 of them. Right. And the Aston Martin CEO is like, this is a this is a car we made for Bond. This is Bond's car. Right. So just for anyone who was curious, this was not a production model. So they went very angular and stylish with the lines on it. It looks yeah. pretty cool. It looks cool. I, I'm a little less keen on when they go hard on like concept car for Bond, but it looks cool. Later in this act, we're going to get a car chase between two different concept cars. Mm-hmm. Hey, Graham, we've had one super spy car. <laughs> I don't think the other car is a super spy car. It's just fast. It's just fast. There's one thing about this car that I like it and it also bothers me. I'm of two minds on it. And that okay. is the fact that the integration of the gadgets is evidently not complete. Yeah, I don't think it was ready for 009 anyway. Yeah, because they've got like test switches with labels on them just like mounted to the dashboard with screws <laughs> what gets me is like at a later point we will discover that the gun barrels for one of the gadgets in the car are fully integrated into the bumper of the car right as you would expect of a bond gadget car right all of the utility is fully integrated except that there's literally just a switch like a toggle switch mounted to the dashboard that says backfire on it and it's like aren't all the gadgets supposed to be hidden so that if a passenger gets in they can't tell that it's a modified supercar mm -hmm. so it's like it's cute and i like it but also it bothers me in universe like they're done with a label maker yeah yeah i think q would have more pride in his work than that i agree but for now his work is heading to rome bond dry i guess he just drove there from london like you do like you do like you can do in europe and he goes to skiara's funeral and there's lots of people around including someone who we only see the back of their head who sort of looks over his shoulder almost like he's looking at bond even though there's no way that he turned far enough around for his eyes to see bond whatever we see that there's someone there and everyone clears out and eventually the only person that's left is skiara's widow her name is lucia and she is played by monica bellucci Monica Bellucci was in Bram Stoker's Dracula as Dracula's Bride in 1992. Nice. I think it's safe to say that was her breakout role. I first saw her in Brotherhood of the Wolf, which is also awesome. Mm -hmm. And then a couple years later, she was Persephone in The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions. Right. And gosh, what else was she in? Shoot 'em Up? Oh, right, she was in Shoot 'em Up. Yeah. I haven't watched Shoot 'em Up in a long, long time. I wonder if that movie holds up. I also wonder that. <laughs> Famously, in 2002, she was in Irreversible, which was controversial upon its release. Mm -hmm. She was also in Passion of the Christ, which was also controversial <laughs> for different reasons. <laughs> the silliest controversy she was ever involved in was that apparently some people thought she was too old to be a Bond girl. Which is kind of absurd. It's absolutely absurd. It was a thing at the time when it was announced that she was going to be inspector and people were like, oh, I don't know about this. Yeah. Daniel Craig. The more I read about Daniel Craig, <laughs> the more I like this guy. Because <laughs> he was like, he was not having that absolutely how dare you first of all how old am i for one thing right this, yeah yeah he he was he was not having 
that particular criticism of Monica Bellucci. Also, he's the reason Phoebe Waller-Bridge is on the writing team for No Time to Die, because mm -hmm. he saw the spy show that she wrote and did showrunner for and was like, we need to get this woman to write Bond. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly in this movie, Monica Bellucci is great. Yeah, she has a lot of presence. Boy, does she. Yeah. And, spoilers, she gets to live. Hooray! <laughs> what a refreshing change of pace for the not-top-billing Bond female co-star. Yeah. He approaches her at the funeral and is like, I'm so sorry for your loss. She says, did you know my husband? He's like, yes, I sell life insurance. <laughs> She's like, well, it's a little late for that. He's like, well, not for you. She's like, how can you have this conversation with me at the funeral? Can't, I love this line exchange. She says, can't you see I'm grieving? And he says, no, I can't because she does not appear to be grieving. Yeah. Two men approach them and follow her as she leaves. And so he follows them. And back at her house at night, she walks inside, pours herself a drink, walks outside, back out the back of the building and basically just stands there knowing that she is about to be killed as two men out of focus in the background approach her and both raise guns aiming at her before they are shot by Bond, who it is revealed is standing in between them in a way that we couldn't see because he was obscured behind her head in the frame. It's a cool shot. It is a cool shot. This whole, like... The whole sequence of her walking through her house is really good yeah. because she puts down the drink and she walks through these series of doors towards the outdoors. And every time she passes through a door, we get a reverse shot of her face coming through the door. And there's a goon hiding in the shadows out of her range of view, but in ours. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they just sort of like come into the center of shot and follow her as she passes into the yard. It's, it's a really cool shot construction. I like it a lot. Yeah, I love it. And I like that she doesn't explicitly know that they're there, but she knows that they're there, if you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she's waiting to be killed, but Bond shoots both of them. And she says, you don't know what you're doing. Cool, you killed those two. You've bought me maybe five minutes. And he's like, well, time enough for a drink then. And they go inside. She's like, were you with my husband at the end? He's like, yep. And she says, did you kill him? And he says, I did. And she slaps him and he throws the drinks to the ground and is like, okay, no, we're we're moving right into the questioning. What's what's <laughs> going on here? And he questions her and then they do the sex, which she's really into, by the way. Yeah. This scene is weird. Like it works, but it's weird. Yes, it is weird, but it works. <laughs> Everyone grieves in their own way. I guess. I like I don't know if it, Monica Bellucci sells it and she sells this like smoldering attraction really well but, but like Bond is not really putting on the charm here but he also like Daniel Craig also manages to sell the sort of like smoldering attraction really well but the power dynamics of this are really weird because Bond basically just sort of backs her into a wall but then she is super into it it's weird it's just weird <laughs> <laughs> At the end of their time together, she comments that she still is going to die like as soon as one of these people shows up. And he's like, no, no, here's a phone number. Call my friend Felix. He'll take you to the embassy and get you out of here. And because we don't see her symbolically killed in some way, we can only assume that that is what happens. Sure. So congratulations, Lucia, you get to live. She tells Bond that this organization is meeting tonight at this site in Rome. They wouldn't have met this soon, but because of Sciara's death, now they have to. You see, she knows these things, which is why they want her dead. Mm -hmm. By the way, ev the whole scene at her house, everything we're about to see here in Rome, yellow. It's just yellow. That's how light works in Italy. In Italy, the light is yellow. 
It's so drab. It is. Part of it, the nighttime outdoor lighting of just having yellow street lights illuminating things at least gives it a neat... The color grading is very yellow and teal because the way the LED lights are contrasted against the sort of like incandescent street lighting. But it does give it a nice like color pop, even if the overall color is quite washed out. There are some nice uses of lighting in the scene, even though it's very yellow, I guess I'm going to say. But you're right, it is like extremely yellow. I just think there's some times where it doesn't make sense for it to be quite so yellow. Mm. Bond arrives at the location that he was given and uh, finds himself greeted by several armed guards outside who he flashes the octopus ring to, taking his cue from Skiara in the, the opening of the movie. The guard is like, oh, okay, sure. Go right on in, sir. And then immediately motions, as soon as Bond is out of sight, immediately motions to the two other goons to get on the phone to whoever is running the meeting because clearly this guy is not supposed to be here. And Bond goes in and he finds a very sort of ornate room with people on a, a balcony overlooking the room, all sort of watching this business meeting unfold. Amusingly, this location, the exterior, yeah. which they call the Palazzo Cadenza, was originally supposed to be shot at the Palazzo Reale near Naples, which was also the Palace of Thede on Naboo in Star Wars. <laughs> I forgot how much Italian architecture was used in the Star Wars prequels. Right. But in the end, they actually just shot it in England at Blenheim Palace. So it's not even in Rome. Wow. But they've used Blenheim for, gosh, Barry Lyndon, Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. The right. Kenneth Branagh take on Hamlet was shot at Blenheim. Oh, yeah. It also showed up in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Okay. Good movie. I don't remember Blenheim Palace showing up there, but it's good movie. Mm -hmm. Bond walks in. And sees this meeting taking place and just sort of circles around the outside of the balcony overlooking the table as reports are being given. And we've seen reports of this style in the past. Mm. A person at the table is giving the report on their control of vaccines and vaccine distribution in this case, Aha. as well as other drugs, how they control 70% of anti-malarial vaccines and HIV and oncological drugs as well. And talking about their, their stake in the drug market in Africa and the, the sorts of control that they are able to exert. There's an empty seat at the head of the table. And so the, the meeting goes on for a while, and then a man comes in. We don't get to see his face. He's illuminated from behind, so his face is in shadow. But he comes in, he sits down at the head of the table, and everybody seated at the table stands up until he takes a seat, you know, commands them all to sit again with a very diminutive, not forceful, but very sort of meek, don't let me interrupt you. And so the reporting continues. As the business proceeds, we find out that someone in the organization is going to need to step up and replace Skiara, who, of course, was an assassin. A man down at the other end of the table puts forward his nomination and essentially says that Skiara was weak. We will not compromise. You know, I, I nominate myself for this role. You know, we will be a strong, forceful hand in the world. The man who walked in and whose face is, you know, in shadow says, does anyone challenge this, you know, this nomination? And a man walks out of the corner. Now, you may, you may recognize this man. <laughs> <laughs> I sure do. Yeah, he's, he's, he's very large. This is Batista. Yeah. Otherwise known as Drax the Destroyer. Yeah. Dave Batista, a.k.a. WWE wrestler Batista. The man is wide as a truck. He is very big. Yeah, the only way in which I think this movie slightly misuses him is that you never truly get to appreciate just how large of a human being he is. <laughs> 
It's true. Yeah, he he is kind of criminally underused by this movie. He is this movie's Jaws, Mm -hmm. except that the movie is unwilling to commit to the silliness of Jaws. Yeah. His, like, Bond-heavy affectation is that he has metal thumbnails, Mm -hmm. which he uses one time in the whole film. (laughs) It's like, he, he didn't even need the metal thumbnails for the thing he uses them for. He could have done this any other... It just thumbs would have been fine. I wanted to see this guy crack a Coke the entire movie. <laughs> just... Yeah. <laughs> that would have been good, yeah. But, like, he he's the movie's heavy. He's the big, ridiculous, superhumanly invulnerable bad guy that beats Bond up. And boy, does he. And he has metal thumbnails. Which he uses to pick up this dude and gouge his eyes until the man dies and then adjusts his suit and sits down in the man's seat saying nothing yeah (laughs) he never talks the character's name is mr hinks he never speaks through the movie well he has one line later but he basically doesn't talk so he get he gets the job yeah (laughs) that's one way to conduct a uh, a job interview there is a uh, another piece of info that's sort of rolled out over the course of the conversations here. They have decided to terminate somebody named the Pale King, or well, codenamed the Pale King. Yes, the Pale King must be terminated. The Pale King came up at an earlier point in the film during the opening as well. Skiara said that after conducting the bombing, he would go meet with the Pale King. And so given the failure of this mission, they have now decided to terminate the Pale King. So with the evening's business out of the way and a successor to Skiara chosen, the tone of the meeting changes a little bit as the man whose face is in shadow takes control of, of order and comments on the fact that they have a visitor. They, they have someone unwelcome among them. He asks James to step forward, says, hmm, it's been a while since I've seen you and looks at where Bond is standing on the upper balcony and reveals that he basically has known that James has been there the whole time. The only thing Bond knows is that this man's name is Franz Oberhauser. Franz Oberhauser is played by Christoph Waltz, who came to be known in North America after his amazing appearance as Colonel Hans Landa in Inglorious Bastards. Right. Holy moly. Yeah. He would go on to also play Dr. King Schultz in Django Unchained, also by Quentin Tarantino. He just became one of Tarantino's boys at that point. (laughs) Yeah. He played Cardinal Richelieu in The Three Musketeers. I think he was in the Green Hornet movie. He was as Chudnovsky. Oh, of course. He was also in Alita Battle Angel. And he's in the TV short series of Most Dangerous Game as Miles Ah. Sellers. So yeah, he just sort of is like, hey, it's been a while since I've seen you. And then Bond is like, oh, and escapes. He like knocks a guy out and (laughs) bursts out the window and runs to his car and takes off. Mr. Hinks is in hot pursuit in his own very fancy car. He's driving a Jaguar CX-75. Oh, it's the Aston Martin versus the Jaguar yet again. Yes, as it turns out, thanks to those who commented on the Die Another Day episode, they're owned by the same parent company. Yeah, which makes sense. Yeah. I, I just like that we're, we're back here again. <laughs> this is a pretty good chase. I think this it chase is. is exciting. It's pretty yeah, good. There's humor Daniel Craig's Bond movies are, like, ludicrously addicted to undermining the things that were good (laughs) or that people liked about (laughs) old Bond movies. Yeah. So we have a gadget car. All along, people have been like, well, he's not James Bond because he doesn't have the gadgets. And so now we have a gadget car, but none of the gadgets work yet. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I have yet another question about how screwed 009 was going to be if he's there to pick up a car that like hasn't had the ammunition loaded in yet. Yeah. Over the course of the scene, he flips the various switches of backfire, which makes a gun come out of the Aston Martin badge on the back of the car. But then he gets a warning that the ammunition's not loaded. He tries the switch marked atmosphere, which just plays a customized playlist for 009. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it starts playing, start spreading the news. Right. So like the music <laughs> in the scene just like drops out. And instead we just hear bop. But da da da, but. and Bond is like, "Oh my god!" and just flips it back off. <laughs> I I don't love the score in this movie, by the way. There's some long sections. There's some sections that are too long. Actually, there's some long sections that just sort of the music kind of plods along. I do like that they use the Bond theme, like in it more yes they have in previous craig movies but there's another comedy moment where bond is stuck behind a fiat and <laughs> just rear ends it and starts flooring it to make this fiat go at like 80 miles an hour and then eventually lets it go and it slams on the brakes and barely like goes tink into like a bollard and then the airbag explodes in this dude's face which is like it's very like this is a john glenn era yeah bond chase comedy moment while engaged in the car chase, he gets on the phone with Money Penny and asks her to look up the Pale King and Oberhauser. And he mentions specifically before and after his death. And Money Penny is like, "What? Sorry, what?" And he's like, "Just <laughs> please, please trust me on this." So Bond has already figured out something that the audience won't be let in on for a little while. But Money Penny does surprisingly quickly turn up that the Pale King is Mister White. I don't know why he gets his own other special nickname. <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, Mr. White, Jesper Christensen, back again. The car chase resolves when Bond finally finds a button that works, which is exhaust, which turns the exhausts into flamethrowers <laughs> and turns Mr. Hink's car on fire. And then he hits the button marked air, which like attaches a five point harness to Bond from the chair, blows the roof off and launches him out on an ejector seat. <laughs> making it look like he just drives his car into the river and drowns. Like, Hinks can't see what happened because of all the fire. And so it, to him, it looks like Bond has just died. Right. And then there's a cool moment of Bond just very gently touching down onto the road in Rome somewhere and disengaging his parachute and saying hello to a street sweeper and carrying on about his evening. <laughs> We see Moneypenny turn up some information on Oberhauser, specifically Franz Oberhauser, son of Hans Oberhauser, father and son feared dead in avalanche, says the newspaper clipping that she turns up. And we see indeed a picture of a man who looks like a very young Christoph Waltz. Mm -hmm. And the caption says his body was not recovered. Not that we're really meant to read it that quickly, but if you're curious. So like if you were reading all the words of the documents very carefully in the movie without being able to pause it. Right. You might already be able to work out sort of where this is going. Yeah. It's going in a, frankly, to my mind, needlessly Bond centric direction, but that is where it's going. Yes. But before we get in on that, we go to Tokyo where C, because everyone calls him C, is addressing the Nine Eyes Committee, which is a international group, sort of like the, I don't know, like the G7, essentially. Yeah. It's an international meeting of intelligence agencies. Oh, 
we can actually see it if speaking of pausing if we look at tanner's email it's spain china france germany italy japan south africa the uk and the u.s we are not relevant once again canada crying outside the building <laughs> Let us in, please. Given the mandate of the Nine Eyes Committee in the context of this movie, I'm perfectly happy for Canada's surveillance and intelligence apparatus not to be a component thereof. <laughs> yeah. Our side plot here is that C's whole thing is that he wants to get these nine countries to agree to a surveillance and intelligence sharing agreement, basically, where instead of each country operating their own intelligence sort of independently they all combine and by their voltron of surveillance capabilities basically are able to surveil the entire world m and tanner are there and sort of talking about it a little bit while c is up giving this stirring presentation and m notes with some annoyance that this would be a not elected group of civilian oversight and you can tell that kind of irks him i'm not sure mi6 is elected either <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm throwing the thesis of this film under the bus here a bit, but I'm not sure MI6 has a lot higher ground in that regard. <laughs> well, no, but M is saying that this is too far. Right. So there is a bit later, which I was actually talking to Paul about this, that Paul remembered from watching in movies that bothered him as well, which is that there's a point at which C is criticizing M and being like, you don't know what it takes. You you don't have the compunction to do what needs to be done. And it's like, you're literally talking to the guy that runs Wetworks for the UK. <laughs> you're talking to the guy who sends assassins out to do government stuff <laughs> illegally around the world. What? Who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> so to your point, yes, that is maybe a little silly. But I like that M at least is like, I don't like this guy. I, I think that this is too much power for a bunch of unelected officials to have. Yeah. As it happens, the vote does not pass because South Africa votes no and it needs to be a unanimous decision. While this is happening, Tanner gets sent an article from the BBC of like street chase ends in a splash with a picture of this Aston Martin being pulled out of a river in Rome. And he forwards it to M with the note, are we sure 007 is in London? <laughs> and M is like, Oh no. So he calls Q and is like, where where is where is 007? Where's where's that man's blood? Check in on the on the smart blood. <laughs> and so Q's like, oh yeah, no, of course. I'm sure he's here. And he goes and checks and he's in Austria. And Q <laughs> goes, he's in Chelsea. <laughs> yup. I'm looking at him now. And M's like, well, great. I want full surveillance on him when I get back. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Austria. Bond drives to a lake and goes across the lake and approaches a completely abandoned looking cabin in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Yeah. As he wanders around this house that has a crow infestation and a surprisingly robust security camera system, he finds a secret door that leads to a secret basement room where Mr. White is there at the nexus of his information gathering lair, I suppose. He's just surrounded by televisions <laughs> and stuff. And he looks like hell. Yeah, he sure does. He's seen better days. Yeah. There's a good reason for that. It turns out he's been poisoned with thallium. Yeah. And is just waiting to die. He says he found the thallium three weeks ago, and he's got another, like, week or two, maybe, at most? Yeah, like a week or two at most. So Bond is like, so, uh, well, now seems like a fine time to tell me everything you know. And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you anything. I'm not. 
And he's like, well, why then? You must be protecting someone, your wife? And he's like, nope, she left a long time ago. Your son, your daughter. And he's like, nuh-uh. <laughs> he's like, well, look, I can protect her. And he says, no, no, she's smarter than me. She stays hidden. You'll never find her. He's like, are you sure? You sure they're not going to find her? Because I feel like they're probably going to find her. I can protect her. Mr. White says, well, how how can I trust you? I'll give you my word. Your word. Great. Cool. James Bond's word. So Bond hands Mr. White his gun and is like, there, that's my word. Mr. White picks up the gun, checks that it's loaded, points it at Bond. And Mr. White says, go here. This is where you'll find her. She can take you to the Marican. We don't know what that is yet. But he says, she can take you to the Marican. What you need to find will be there. Goodbye. And shoots himself. Because it's probably preferable than dying of radiation poisoning over the next two weeks yeah bond very quickly checks his pockets finds a photo of him and the daughter in his wallet and leaves then we're back in london at the very fancy looking cns building with c and m having a conversation our major thing that we learn here is that we get a little bit of a description about what the nine eyes plan is and and some back and forth about how they feel about it c of course is like it will be the world's greatest surveillance collecting organization and m is like and george orwell's worst nightmare then he sort of like barbs him by offering his condolences on the lost vote c says well no worries it's just a matter of time south africa will come around do they comment at this point i think it also comes in at this point that like the money put forward to build this building didn't come from the government it was mostly private benefactors which seems like an enormous red flag right (laughs) (laughs) holy crap (laughs) yeah 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 You've you've heard of GM Place Arena. Well, now we have Rogers Surveillance Tower. <laughs> God, it's very Orwellian, actually. <laughs> I mean, I guess that was more so the government, but it turns out the government isn't nearly as scary as corporations and billionaires with way too much money. Uh-huh. So we also get some back and forth pitting the worldviews of M and C against each other. M sort of criticizes the use of information and how like sterile and, and removed it is. And C is like, oh, well, you know, one man in the field can't have that much of an effect. We have the ability to to move nations, not men, kind of a, an argument. And then M sort of puts the the screws to him being like, listen, have you, have you ever actually had to kill somebody? Have you ever been in combat? Have you been in the, the trenches doing the thing? And and that that like chastens C a little bit, but not enough to change his mind. No, in fact, then he goes, you know, I didn't want to have to do this, but you need to control your agents and plays a recording of Bond talking to Moneypenny during that car chase. And M is like, you are surveilling MI6 agents? And he just responds, I'm surveilling everyone. He's so sleazy. He's so sleazy. As I said, he's getting more and more obviously evil as the movie goes on. Yeah. We also get the delivery of one additional sort of like thematic element where, again, talking about this sort of like sterility and information driven aspect of surveillance and drone strikes and whatnot versus having the judgment of a person in the field. M tells C that like a license to kill is also a license to not kill. And the judgment of knowing when to pull the trigger and when not to pull the trigger is something that, that you know, it's a judgment that's irreplaceable and it's something only an agent in the field can have is basically the gist of it. That'll come up later. It'll be important later in the movie. It came up last movie and we actually sort of forgot to mention it 
during the conversation with Bond and Q, where Bond is like, what, you can't just do everything with computers now. And Q says, well, every so often a trigger needs to be pulled. And Bond says, or not pulled. Right. It's knowing the difference that's the tricky part. Right. And it came up in the movie before that. When Bond went around killing everybody and had to learn the difference. Earlier in this podcast, we had the movies borrowing stunts and visuals from other Bond films. But in the Craig era, we have them borrowing themes, but it's like back to back to back. Yeah. It feels like every single one of these is like, is it is this the 007s? Is this something we really need? Do we really need these 00 agents? Well, sometimes you have to have someone shoot a guy. Ah, uh-uh, or not shoot a guy. But what if the guy doing the shooting is too old? Or what if he shoots too many people? <laughs> or not enough people. Maybe he's too experienced or not experienced enough. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Maybe he's both in the same film. These movies do seem to have like a handful of questions they're interested in asking and exploring. And they just keep revisiting them over and over again. I should say, I'm giving this a like delighted ribbing at this point, but I am still over the course of this movie very much enjoying it so far. Yeah, it's still real good. Bond now goes to the retreat, essentially, where Mr. White's daughter, Dr. Madeline Swan, is working. It's an alpine self-health clinic. So I, I need to, to jump in here as well, because this is something that's so James Bond, hmm. and I love it. But what alternate dimension does James Bond live in where there are all these medical clinics at the top of Swiss mountains? <laughs> It's, it is very OHMSS, isn't it? <laughs> right? Bond has an appointment, you see, and so he gets to meet Madeline Swan, played by Leah Sido. Leah? Leah? Leah Sido. She was in Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, as Sabine Moreau. Huh. She was in the 2010 Robin Hood. Oh, the, the one with Jamie Foxx and Eggsy, the actor's name I can't pronounce. All right, with, no, 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 the Ridley Scott Robin Hood, not Zero Dark Loxley. Okay. <laughs> Correct, yes. <laughs> Credit to that joke to Dan Olson. That's not me. That was very good. She was also in Inglorious Bastards. Right. Which I had forgotten that she and Christoph Waltz were both in Inglorious Bastards. She was in the Grand Budapest Hotel with Rafe Fiennes as well. Mm-hmm. She was Zoe in Zoe. She was also in Death Stranding with Mods Mickelson. Oh, huh. Because it's a Hideo Kojima game, she played a character called Fragile. Oh, Hideo. <laughs> <laughs> oh hideo <laughs> of course she did she was also in a 2014 live action remake of beauty and the beast with vincent cassell oh really dang i want to see this <laughs> vincent cassell is the prince yes <laughs> i like how into this you are <laughs> vincent, vincent cassell is awesome i'm still so mad that they missed the boat at casting him as gambit in the original x-men movies <laughs> he would have been perfect as gambit oh he really would have I, I had to look him up to remember what he looked like but you're right he totally would have and he could do the the voice and the accent and everything Further, like, just actor relationships. Mm -hmm. Married to Monica Bellucci from 1999 to 2013. What, Vincent Cassell was? Yeah. Huh. Weird. Yeah. (laughs) There's only a dozen actors. (laughs) 
Anyway, they have an amusing back and forth where she's like, so you didn't fill out your form all the way. So let's just go through the last couple questions. Uh, sort of they have some like banter about the questions that he didn't fill out. And he's being like medium cagey, but not really. And then she's like, and I see you didn't write down occupation. And he's like, oh, um, I kill people. Not the kind of thing that looks good on a form. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, as he says. Yeah. Yeah. His cover story here is that he's here for a psychological and physical rehabilitation and exam kind of situation, which is why he's being like having all these questions asked of him. Yeah. It's funny. One thing that the Craig movies have really leaned on is that James Bond 007 is an assassin, like a man who is purpose is to kill people. Right. Which was never a, a thing originally. Like James Bond has a license to kill. Mm -hmm. James Bond 007 is allowed by the government to kill mm -hmm. if he needs to. And he usually did in the movies, but it was never styled as an assassin. Right. It was like, go and protect the country and stop that man from doing things things which will probably involve killing him but we're not sending you to kill him we're sending you to stop him if you can stop him without killing him cool yeah we love that intelligence exactly but the the craig movies are like no nah, he's a hitman yeah definitely more than previously like in the living daylights it felt like the assassination mission that he was sent on was like something he was comfortable with and something that he's done before and knows how to do but did feel sort of like the exception to the standard kind of mission that he is sent on is not not his normal mission profile mm -hmm. when he says by the way i kill people she's like excuse what <laughs> <laughs> excuse me and he's like, yeah, sorry, uh, your dad uh, is dead. Uh, I was there. I didn't kill him. And uh, he told me to uh, come here and uh, protect you. And she's like, get out, get leave. You have 10 minutes and then I'm calling security. Be not here now. Goodbye. I don't want anything to do with him. I love just from a Bond characterization point of view. I love that she tells him he has 10 minutes to leave until security gets called and he goes to the bar. Yeah. <laughs> he just goes downstairs <laughs> to the bar and just watches her office because it's this big open plan glass interior. He just watches her office at the bar. He's like vodka martini shaken, not stirred. And he's and the guy is like, I'm so sorry. So we do not serve alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so then Q walks in and orders like some kind of ridiculous green energy toxin cleansing juice smoothie. <laughs> the prolytic digestive enzyme shake. Uh, with mint frosting. <laughs> so yeah, Q is there because of course he knows where Bond is and he's like, you need to come home with me right now. Listen, young man. The opening line from Bond as he hears Q walk up is like, if you're looking for the car, I parked it at the bottom of the Tiber. <laughs> and Q's like, oh yeah, great. That that was only three million pounds. <laughs> he's like, you need to come home right now. And Bond's like, well, not yet. Sorry, but one more thing and then you can be completely out of this and throw me under the bus. Can you please analyze this ring and hands him the Spectre ring? So the two security men show up to escort Bond out of there as other men have shown up in Swan's office to escort her out of there. Bond hasn't spotted this because he was talking to Q. The barman returns with this enzyme shake and Bond says to him, why don't you just pour that in the toilet and cut out the middleman? <laughs> So Bond is going to go calmly with the security until he sees the people taking Swan. So he pushes one of the security guys away, socks the other one in the stomach. And then as the first guy is getting back up, he just raises his finger at him and goes, no, sit. 
He's like says, no dog. stay. Yeah, no, <laughs> stay. And the guy just goes, what? And Bond just <laughs> leaves. And I love that moment because it's like, you are not, you would get your ass so kicked by him. He is not, <laughs> he is not remotely scared of you. <laughs> and he's leaving anyway. So yeah. Bond's like, no, stay. And just leaves. And the guy's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I love it. Oh, me too. Th- that is my Bond moment for the movie. 100%. No question. That line is quite likely the high point of this movie for me. <laughs> <laughs> that one's it's very high up there i'm also a big fan of i'll be right back steps out of window or <laughs> lands calmly from parachute on road and says hi to street sweeper like there's yeah a lot of little moments where it's like oh he does get to finally sort of be bond here this is nice yeah so let me get this little sort of two-pronged chase where q gets into the gondola heading back down the hill as a man sits down across from him who we just assume is evil because he looks kind of creepy well and he's staring at Q the entire way down. (laughs) Bond sees Mr. Hinks and a couple Spectre goons gather Madeline Swan into a truck and head down hill and then bond just sort of like runs off in a different direction and we see that he has somehow stolen a plane (laughs) and is flying it beside them (laughs) on this mountain highway and he waves at them and shoots i don't know what he's expecting to do hopefully not hit swan i guess mr hinks fires back with this ridiculous double-barreled handgun blowing massive holes in the side of the plane and then for me the movie starts to make me upset Uh because q is analyzing the specter ring and he's getting dna hits on it and specifically he's getting dna hits on it from skiara and then silva from skyfall and then green from Quantum of Solace, and uh-huh. then Lashif from Casino Royale. And I don't like this. <laughs> That's fair. It comes up here, it comes up at the end, and it comes up partway before where Oberhauser says, oh, all of that, that was all me. Everything that happened, Lashif in Casino Royale, everything in green, Quantum, they all actually work for us. Silva, even, even Silva, all of that was actually me. And I don't like that. No. I really, really dislike that because it completely undercuts those other movies. Silva was scary because he was this unhinged guy working on his own. And for the bad guy now to be like, oh yeah, yeah, no, that was all my plan. He was working for me. Is like, well, you've retroactively made that worse now. Yes, I 100% agree. The line is, I am the architect of all your pain. And like, no, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is not a taste I like. No, I'm on board for like almost all of this movie, but the parts where... The plot exists... (laughs) The parts where they try to connect everything under one house and try to make Spectre this all-encompassing Daniel Craig harassment society. (laughs) I just don't like it. It makes the other films retroactively worse by taking away those villains' autonomy. Yes. I mean, it's a retcon right? Like it's a bad retcon. retcon. We are retroactively enforcing narrative continuity onto a franchise of films that weren't built for them. So like 100%, it makes those films worse because then you start puzzling it out. It's like, well, wait, how did that work? Quantum was like the cool, mysterious, scary organization that ostensibly, to get my ostensibly in for the week, was going to replace Spectre in the Craig era because they didn't want to do Spectre because of certain characters and associations with Spectre. 
that they didn't really feel like they were free to use. And so they set up this cool organization. And then it turns out it's like, oh, yeah, they're, they're just like, they're nobody. They're just like a cell of Spectre. <laughs> it's like there can be more than one secret organization in the world. They don't all have to connect. Yeah. I fully agree with you that it makes the movies like it, it retroactively harms <laughs> those movies and i oftentimes just elect to forget that that particular plot hook exists in this film and the thing is it also makes this movie worse yes because that's the bad guy's thing in this movie there's the whole nine eyes surveillance thing but the big like really scary thing that the bad guy has going for him is that he's been this mastermind all along and it's like okay but what are you actually doing right now oh the surveillance thing but it presents the franchise spanning mastermind thing as the big evil right which is like but what are you doing now yeah it's got like the stakes backwards yeah the big scary thing is everything i did prior and then now i'm doing this other thing and it's like but the the other thing is like not as scary as it's i'm i'm having a difficult time articulating this but I, i sort of know what you mean like the big scary thing is the actual villain plot of this movie, like the actual Bond story here is secret organization is facilitating the construction of a globe spanning intelligence network so that they can surveil and manipulate governments on a global scale. That is the like the big yeah. world saving plot, right? Which is legitimately a good big world scary James Bondy plot. Right. But the plot that this movie is interested in putting forward as the primary plot is I'm pissed off at James Bond. Yeah. And I've made his life bad. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> his life was not great. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, that'll come up another couple times, but this yeah. is the first time that we see it. And it's like, wait, what is Lashif and Silva and Green doing there? What What is this? What Did they pass this ring around? We never saw them wear it. That's weird. Yeah. Also, it is a retcon because like explicitly Lashif was not part of Mr. White's organization. Yeah. Mr. White said that his organization was introducing these guys to Lashif and Lashif was a banker who didn't work for them. And they killed Lashif because he made them look bad. Not because right. he was a subordinate of them. Right. He failed them, but he had done banking for them in the past. Yeah. He wasn't a member. Anyway, Bond is about to crash a plane through some trees. So I guess let's talk <laughs> about that instead. <laughs> Q manages to escape because a bunch of snowboarders bustle into the gondola and he manages to make a break for it and like duck around a corner and hide in a stairwell and the guys who are chasing him don't see him. But Swan, who does manage to stop a guy from injecting her with something, and there's a guy in the backseat with her who pulls out a syringe and she like grabs it and injects him with it and it knocks him out. And then Mr. Hinks aims his gun at her and is like, don't, don't do that. He doesn't talk, but he's just like, mm -mm. <laughs> so Bond then gets his plane around and starts playing chicken <laughs> by like driving his plane directly at them, which causes one of the three trucks to fly off the road and blow up, which is actually the distraction that allows Q to escape. I kind of like that those two parts are connected even though they're far apart from one another yes yeah the wings get torn off the plane because bond is flying low into the trees and he rear ends one of the vehicles with the plane <laughs> and then like manages to steer it just barely it basically turns into a toboggan with propeller engines <laughs> and manages to steer it through this alpine farmhouse it's a lot of ohmss visual callbacks to me anyway but i yeah. guess it's just because we haven't had a good ski chase in a while <laughs> 
And we're in like Swiss Alpine Resort kind of yeah. kind of area. So he manages to crash into the vehicles. Mr. Hinks goes through the windshield and Swan is fine, but everyone else is sort of fallen about the place and Bond manages to get her out of the truck. Bond is like, okay, great. Now I've rescued you. Let's go. She's like, did you ever think that like you brought them here? I, I don't want to go with you. Yeah, she's super pissed at him. <laughs> yeah, I, I understandably pissed, I would say. She's not happy with this. Just as they head out, we do see some movement from the hand of Mr. Hinks, because he's not dead yet. Despite having gone headfirst through the windshield. I hope he comes back in no time to die. We didn't see the body. Yeah, me too. I suppose we would have found out by now if Batista was on the credits list, but I hope they've managed to keep it under wraps so it can be a surprise. <laughs> I'm not holding my breath. No, but fingers crossed. Anyway, they head back to Q's hotel room and he gives them the information about, gosh, he's like, okay, Silva, Skiara, White, Patrice from Skyfall, Green, Lashif, that they're all connected to this Franz Oberhauser guy. Q also mentions that there has been a further terrorist attack because we'd heard earlier in the movie that there was a bunch of terrorist attacks in different countries. Mm -hmm. Conveniently, also, those were countries that voted yes on that Nine Eyes Committee thing. Right. If you recall, South Africa voted no, and now there has been a terrorist attack in Cape Town in South Africa. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's revealed here is that we learn the name of the organization finally. Oh, right. Yes. Q, of course, says they're all part of some organization. And Bond is like, well, do you know what this organization is? What is it called? And... Madeline volunteers that it's called Spectre. And he's like, look, please, you have to introduce me to the American so I can talk to him. And she's like, it's not a person. It's a place. Fine. Come on. I'll show you. And then we relocate to Tangier. Yes, because l'american is a hotel in tangier so they go inside they get this particular room because she mentions that this is where her mom and dad used to come every year on their anniversary in fact he kept coming back here every year even after they divorced and he's like oh well in that case i'm sorry and she says why and then we just hard cut to bond having torn the room apart <laughs> Uh, he didn't find anything. Well, not nothing. He found a bottle of spirits like buried way in the back of a cabinet, but that's about yeah. it. Nothing else. Dr. Swan has not been participating in the disheveling of this room. No, she's been spending too much time getting wasted. <laughs> <laughs> she's sitting at the foot of the bed with a glass of red wine getting turned up. Yeah. And she's like, all right, I'm going to go to bed. And she like picks herself up and like bonks into him. And he's like, oh, you know, like bed. She's like, you're going to sit on the chair. Don't think that just because I'm drunk that anything's going to happen. Good night. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially <laughs> that's what happens. basically she's, it. Yeah. She's like, no, night, night. And just sort of collapses on the bed. I actually, I also love this scene. Bond wakes up with a start in the middle of the night on the chair, having drunk more. And there's a mouse on the floor in the middle of the room. <laughs> And he very carefully pulls his gun on the mouse and is like, how did you get in here? Who are you working for? <laughs> it's just like, who sent you? <laughs> like, he's just amusing himself, really. Yeah. Oh, man. This movie, there's so much in it that I like. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but honestly, like, Truthfully, one of my biggest criticisms of the movie, obviously there's all that narrative stuff that bugs me with tying together all the continuity and stuff, but it's also just like, it's too long. Oh yeah. There are individual scenes that go on too long. I don't mean there's too many scenes. I don't think there's necessarily scenes that need to be excised entirely, unlike previously where I talked about like subplots that could have been removed. Just the pacing and how long certain specific scenes go on for just takes a really long time 
time. Yeah. It's just kind of tiring to watch. Yeah, it's just very gradual. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I hesitate to call it sluggish because it's still, like, exciting, right? Like, at least up until a point. And, like, one of the things I like about it taking its time is that there's lots of opportunity for you to see characters process things and you can actually see them act their way to conclusions. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which happens in this scene, right? Like we could, yeah. there's like a, just a shot several seconds long of Bond staring at a wall, but you can see what's going through. Like you as the audience member can follow his train of thought through it, even mm-hmm. though there's no dialogue. And like, I don't mind that, but yeah, this movie is just, it goes on forever, <laughs> which is sort of a consequence of a movie that you've structured in this way. What Bond realizes from watching this mouse run into a crack in the wall is that that wall is hollow. And so he just starts punching through the plaster. And I guess Mr. White rebuilt this wall every year because it looks great. But yeah, there's a hidden room behind this wall. I assume there was a proper entrance for this room that Bond just didn't use. (laughs) You don't see it. Like, it looks like there's a doorway where he punches through. Yeah, you're right. It does look like there's a doorway where he punches through. I don't know, maybe he arranged with the hotel to plaster it back. I, inexplicable. Yeah. Inexplicable. It should have been a secret doorway <laughs> because Dr. Swan would remember that there was a door in that wall, <laughs> having yeah. been there multiple times. Inside is a bunch of surveillance equipment and information on notes that Mr. White has kept over the years. There's some family photos, which swan looks at and gets very tearful about like shots of her as a baby and the family in happier times meanwhile bond is coming across a vhs tape labeled vesper lind interrogation and so he gets a bit of a like whoa and she's like what what'd you find what what made that expression come over your face and he's like nope nothing and just chucks it and then he turns on this comically old looking laptop like the kind of laptop that's like inside a hard case right with like actual mechanical switches to turn it on swan finds some coordinates attached to a pin board and so they start looking up various coordinates and they're like well here what these coordinates are in the middle of the desert i guess it's there or whatever that is so that's where they're going they're going to some place in the middle of the desert this organization really likes blank open spaces of desert in which there is nothing on maps in which to situate facilities doesn't it (laughs) it's a reasonable place to go i guess Back in London, M and Moneypenny are arriving, it turns out, too late for this meeting of the Nine Eyes Committee because as C happily informs them, oh, yeah, the meeting got moved up. Didn't you get the message? And M says, no, we didn't. (laughs) Through gritted teeth. And C is like, ah, well, shame. Anyway, it was a unanimous voting. Obviously, South Africa's on board now. You know, we know... I don't know exactly where we overheard it, but we know that the attack in South Africa was a Spectre thing. Right. So we assume that it's all connected to the Nine Eyes Committee and this surveillance thing, which is going online in 72 hours. And C is like, oh, by the way, just wanted to let you know that they're wrapping up the double O section effective immediately. So sorry, (laughs) not sorry. I love how not sorry he is. He's... (laughs) He's so slimy. (laughs) He's like trying to put on the serious conciliatory face and just not doing a good job at it. (laughs) All of his words are like just barbed. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Does M call him a jumped up little shit? Yes. And a cocky little bastard. Yes. Which leaves him looking pretty unfazed. (laughs) Yeah. He doesn't seem to really care that much. Yeah. On a train going through the desert... Bond and Swan are in a private car and Bond is like, well, here's a gun. And she's like, I don't like guns. And he's like, well, I promised your dad that I would keep you safe. So here's a gun. 
She's like, I don't like guns. And he picks it up and goes, okay, look, here's the front sight. Here's the rear sight. This is the, you point it at the other person. You try not to blink. And he hands it to her. And she very deftly and ably disarms it, like takes the mag out, pops the one round out of the chamber, sets it back and is like, I said, I don't like them. (laughs) And Bond quickly realizes, I don't need to teach you anything, do I? And she's like, look, I can protect myself and he's like well all right i guess we'll skip the hand-to-hand part then as well yeah we get we get a little bit of backstory there too yes we do the backstory being that she doesn't like guns because when she was a child someone presumably from specter but maybe not came to her house to try and kill her father that person didn't know about the gun that her father kept in the kitchen and she had to defend them and we don't get much more than that but that is why she doesn't like guns. Mm -hmm. Back in London, Q and Moneypenny find M at a restaurant and are like, look, we've figured out where Bond is. We know where he is. He's here. There's nothing that's supposed to be in the desert, but look, satellite photos show that there's this huge facility there. What can we do? We have to do something. And M is like, no, we literally, the best thing, the most useful thing for us to do for him right now is nothing. If we try to help him, we will just lead people to him. Mm -hmm. They have all of us under surveillance. In fact, go and delete all the smart blood stuff. We need to just let him do his thing alone or we will ruin it. Yeah, I love that turn from M, by the way. I love the fact that he is immediately like, Bond has found himself a mission (laughs) and I can trust that whatever mission he's found himself on is important and like valuable. So wipe him off the map so he can operate and do what he does best. (laughs) Yeah. It's great. I really quite like Rafe Fiennes M. I enjoyed him in Skyfall and I like him even more here. He has what I liked about Bernard Lee's M, which is he doesn't necessarily like Bond. <laughs> like they <laughs> they fight a lot and he's kind of done with Bond's crap, but he absolutely respects Bond and Bond's abilities. Yeah. It's tough for me to pin this their relationship down quite as much. I like the fact that they've given Ray Fiennes M the backstory of being in British Special Forces. Yes. And having been military and like having him actually operate in every movie is also has also been really good. Like having mm-hmm. him actually like firing guns and doing things is like this is a guy who who could have been Bond in another era and has just like sort of aged out and is now leading the organization but still fundamentally understands everything that's going on and fundamentally gets bond (laughs) yeah he's still very capable and maybe even like kind of wants to get into the field yeah sort of the i'm too old to really be an operative but it still gets my my blood going when i have to get into a firefight and i sort of still secretly want to do it from time to time (laughs) Mm -hmm. thinking on it a little bit i think one of the things that makes that m bond relationship really fire and really function is that there is somebody who fundamentally understands bond and is an authority figure and knows when to let him off the leash and knows when to give the leash a tug it's sort of counter to the one or two instances of m that we haven't liked where they're just at odds (laughs) yeah yeah no i like that too they are now at the dining car bond and swan and dressed for it why they have these outfits with them is completely beyond me (laughs) (laughs) there's not much reason for it is there no but bond has the like white dinner jacket and carnation like the classic connery dinner outfit yep and swan has this fantastic dress and it's like why do both of you have this stuff they don't get to enjoy it for very long because bond notices in the reflection of the champagne bucket that there's a very angry mr hinks running at him (laughs) 
<laughs> it's not entirely clear how Mr. Hinks knows where they are, whether it's because of the smart blood that they figured it out before M got Q to deactivate it or something to do with Mr. White's place. Because Hinks does show up to kill Mr. White because he got the job at that meeting to go and terminate the Pale King. And he right. shows up and finds Mr. White already dead and notices the security cameras and so can tell that it's Bond that does it. But, you know, maybe then followed them to L'American and then was able to track them from there. But it, it doesn't matter. There's a lot of perfectly plausible ways for him to have found them here. And I legitimately have no problem with this. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm fine with the idea that he's just tracked them because they're tracking him. Yeah. Hey, it's been a while since we had a good train fight it has been train fight quickly before we get onto the train fight the dinner date that happens just before the train fight indicates that they are on good terms now they've they've reconciled and they're like getting along yeah not just that it like gets the the zero to i love you goes very quickly in this movie sorry the zero to i am very upset with you back to i love you <laughs> happens over very little time in this movie yeah again i take it as read that a lot happens in the they're on this train for a while and we only see glimpses of it learning a little bit about each other through the gun thing and their time at the hotel and their interactions there have each one has been a little less cold than the last and so now they're at dinner and they're both looking their best and they're like flirty with each other and joking about how she jokes about how when she she's drunk it makes her do crazy things and bond is like well we can't have that then and then she immediately orders a martini they have been sort of like progressively warming but the steps that the movie has taken between each interaction from like i hate you to we're fine with each other to all right i'm getting to know you a bit to like oh my god are pretty big jumps yeah i just found that when it finally came to her doing the very almost fairy tale i love you you know like true love's power kind of thing it felt a yes. little unearned within the movie yes I, I agree yeah but in the meantime train fight yeah train fight and it's a good train fight it is it is <laughs> i where did everybody else on the train go i i mean would you stick around <laughs> <laughs> no but like there's there's nobody in the kitchen there's no if you're in the kitchen and the people are fighting in the dining car and they come towards the kitchen you can only retreat into the next car over but then they go into that car and there's still nobody anywhere <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. I guess they're all huddled in the caboose. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Quite early on, Swan knocks Hinks over the head with like maybe the stand for the ice bucket. I'm not sure. And he just like huge backhands her and like knocks her silly. So it's mostly Bond and Hinks fighting. You mentioned in a previous episode, Daniel Craig's Bond getting beaten. I believe you said from hell to breakfast. <laughs> yes and that's basically the gist of this fight mr hinks just beats bond's ass through several train cars <laughs> and bond is mostly helpless to do anything about it they end up in a storage like the kitchen supply car he beats bond through the kitchen supply car finally sort of incapacitates bond seats him sort of unceremoniously on a uh, a crate as Bond is gradually sort of recovering and opens a door on the side of the train to hurl Bond out of it. And Bond manages to just sort of like hang on to uh, a handle on the side of the wall as Hink sort of fights with him and tries to shove him out the door. And just as he pulls Bond's hand loose and is ready to hurl him out the door, he takes a gunshot in the arm. And it turns out that Madeline has come to, found Bond's gun, and followed them to the back of the train where she has found them and has shot 
Mr. Hinks. And so he dodges away. She tries to sort of track him down. He knocks the gun out of her hand and starts beating on Bond again. And as this happens, Bond manages to get a rope around his neck, which is tied to a beer keg. And he kicks the beer keg out of the train. Hinks realizes what's about to happen and just says, shit. As the rope around his neck pulls him by the head out the open door on the train, the camera cuts back to Bond and Madeline. Madeline says, what do we do now? Abruptly cut to heavy makeouts in the sleeper car is what we do. Yep. They're both so keyed up on killing a guy that it's time to bone down. I love that she gets a very active role in that fight. Yes. And I do like the like one word thing. I also like the the kegs getting taken out on this chain. One Like you can see it coming a mile away. You're like, oh, I see how this is going to go. But it still is like a good moment of like the clip the thing on the last keg goes out and then just like, oh, shit, Whoop. gone. He could easily survive that. I want to see him back. I mean, if not in the next movie, bring him back when we refresh Bond. Just bring Mr. Hinks back in like a, a future <laughs> Bond movie. Yeah, we're not there yet, but I really, really hope they keep Ray Fiennes and Naomi Harris on. I think you have to. Like, to honor the history of the Bond franchise, like, I really, really, really hope they don't get keyed up in what I will, I'm now willing to call, like, reboot madness and decide that they have to throw out everything and start over. From the origin story? Well, not necessarily from the origin story, but, like, just, like, I really don't want them to throw out the traditions of the franchise and restart with a recast of everyone, particularly if they decide they have to go in, like, some other direction. If it's, like, Young Bond, or we're going back in time to the 1960s, and it's going to be Cold War Bond again, or we're leaning back into camp, and it's going to be Goofy Bond. Keep those actors, though. <laughs> yeah. Having just done the deed, Bond and Madeline hop off the train at a train station in the middle of the desert, and they just hang out there for a while. Bond says it's gonna gonna be a while, and a while it is. We we cut to a little later as they're still standing around this train station waiting, and Madeline sees a dot come over the horizon and uh, and asks Bond, "What's that?" And Bond responds with, "That is a 1948 Rolls Royce something or other silver wraith." That was what I was looking for. He responds with, "That is a 1948 Rolls Royce silver wraith." I assume that's very fancy. I mean, 1948 Rolls Royce. Forget the silver wraith part. It's cool as that sounds. 1948 Rolls Royce is still in running condition has to be very expensive yeah and it's quite dusty which is not a surprise given their location in the desert before we move on before we leave this location mm -hmm. I love Bond's outfit in this whole sequence I love it so much it's a good look uh it's so good the brown unstructured suit with the knit tie uh, <laughs> I adore it this is another like aspirational look for me I Daniel Craig wears it so well it's just so well put together. It's not too matchy. It's great for the location. It, ugh, ugh, I could gush about it all day. I love this look. He looks so sharp. So a man gets out and says, please, just sort of gesturing to the car. So they get in the car and they drive to the desert. It's this complex in the middle of a crater. It's very cool looking. This is very, is this is very Bond villain Laird kind of zone. It is. I love that it's got like impeccably watered lawns. <laughs> yeah, what a pain and a waste of water that must be. Probably got all the water from green. Probably. <laughs> so he's like, our host is very pleased to see you. He will see you later for dinner. And in the meantime, we will show you show you to your rooms. And he's like, okay, that sounds great. Sure, okay. He's like, but... 
before we do that, and then a man comes over with a silver tray and gestures to Bond, and Bond just sort of looks at him, and the man looks at the tray, and then the guy who greeted them just looks at Bond and looks at the tray, and Bond's like, oh, I see, and takes his gun out and puts it on the tray. Be careful with that. It's loaded. Yeah, just like the Bond was playing kind of stupid there for a moment, just to amuse himself. So they get sent to their individual rooms with a view over this facility. There's like observatories and satellite dishes. And this is clearly, you know, like big surveillance town is what's going on here. Surveillance of the universe, apparently. <laughs> Evidently, yeah. Because it's clearly an astronomical observatory. In Bond's room is an unburnt photograph that doesn't look like a photograph, where we see that there is the little James Bond and Hans Oberhauser and Franz Oberhauser, who looks like a very, very young Christoph Waltz. So they knew each other from when they were a kid. Mm -hmm. And more on that will be laid out more explicitly in a moment. In Swan's room, there is a dress laid out for her and a photo of her and Mr. White in much, much younger days. I like the very old photo of Jesper Christensen. Yeah, that photo is convincing. I don't know why the other one's not. <laughs> yeah. So they get led to an observatory. The man sort of gestures to some champagne and Bond's like, uh, maybe later. Like he just, just doesn't trust it. I've been had by this before. Yeah. So they go inside. And was that a Dr. No reference? Maybe. I don't know if it was explicitly a reference, but that was certainly what I was thinking. <laughs> anyway, there's like an observatory room in the middle of which is this illuminated meteorite. Bond sort of whispers. He's like, I think we're supposed to be impressed. <laughs> And then we hear the voice from off camera. We hear, do you know what it is? And Swan's like, it's a meteorite. The Kartenhof, the oldest in human possession. The very meteorite which made this crater. So, okay, like that's not, that's not a real meteorite for whatever that's worth. I don't know what the oldest meteorite in human possession necessarily means. Like, like the one that was found most long ago or the meteorite itself is the oldest. Also, a meteorite of that size? would probably have made a larger crater. You would think, right? Yeah. But anyway, this is one of those things where it's like, that's not, I tried to find out, that's not a real thing. I assume that in this world, the only reason that we don't know about it is because this guy has it. Right. I guess. Franz steps into shot and we get a little bit of a monologue from him and a little bit of sort of butting heads between him and Bond. He delivers this line that kind of bugs me where he's like, think about it alone up there for so many years until it chose here to come down and make its mark. He didn't choose anything. It's an inanimate object. <laughs> they just collided. You're an inanimate effing object. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't choose. But it, like, it sort of works because I get what they're going for in this because it yeah. allows Bond and him to sort of quit back and forth because he's like, until it chose this place to come and huge unstoppable force making its mark on the world. And Bond just responds, but it did stop, didn't it? Right here. And you get the like, ooh, <laughs> it's a metaphor and bond has <laughs> picked up on it and he's making a metaphor of his own metaphor fight <laughs> oberhauser also talks to swan and says oh you know it's nice to see you the first time i saw you you were so small i i came to your house once to see your father do you remember so i guess it's implied that he was the one that came there to kill mr white i guess or at least among those people yeah i mean like the the implication from madeline is that she killed the guy that came to her house but then franz is like i came to your house and she plays coy about it she's like oh no i don't remember that and it's clear that she's lying right like she clearly yeah. knows 
knows who this guy is and is lying about it just based on the way she delivers the line. But it's a weird implication for them to make. It just leaves a lot of like unanswered questions. It's like, is that what they were going for? I'm not sure. I don't know. Like, I sort of took it as, yes, that was the idea, and maybe she didn't kill him. Maybe she just drove him away. But it, it like, it, it literally just opens up a ton of questions that if you think too hard about it, it just sends you into a spiral. Because it's, it's not resolved in the movie. It, it's never made clear. Well, we wouldn't want that. No. Then we get Franz tells Bond his whole plan, basically. He walks them into a corridor and is like, surveillance, intelligence. That is, you know, the great power. Information is everything. Yeah, Bond asks what this place is. He's like, what, what is this whole facility? And Oberhauser just goes, information! Th- that, like, with no further follow-up in that moment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, then we move to an interior space that very much reminded me of Droopy Dog's place in <laughs> Moonraker. I can see why. Just like the double level desks and all the monitors and everything. Yeah. You know what it reminded me of? Mm? I even quipped it at myself. There's a shot from behind as Franz is walking down the hall or like through the middle of this room with the the layers of surveillance employees. There's one guy that's got a black screen with vertical lines on it and like colors. And I was like, that man is playing Galaga. He thought we wouldn't (laughs) notice, but we did. (laughs) I forgot about that. That's really good. <laughs> wow, that, it does look like he's playing like Beat Mania or something. Right? <laughs> but yeah, you're you're totally right. It does look like some of the Moonraker sets as well. It feels good to be noticing sort of like visual references to old Bond movies again. There's so much in this movie that I actually, upon rewatching it for today, enjoyed. Yes! It's weird that the end result of it leaves me feeling kind of empty. (laughs) Yeah, and like, we'll get to why. We're almost there. On the way to this room, Franz tells Bond, you know, by sure you know by now that the double O section is dead. Why did you even come here? And and Bond is like, well, I came here to kill you. And so he walks him into this room to show off their surveillance apparatus. <laughs> he he shows him the amount of power he has because he, he walks over to one desk and is like, is this live? And the guy's like, yes, sir. And it's video footage of M standing in MI6 telling all the employees well maybe it's the fate of all spies to disappear we've been fired our office is being wrapped up so everybody pack up your desks and go home yeah holy crap okay (laughs) that's his little taunt at bond there bond puts up an air of not really being impressed he's like oh you know you're just a petty tyrant situation is impressive but it can all come crashing down when i kill you is the sort of like response that he's putting forward he connects the dots that c is working for franz and franz confirms it it's not even clear that c is necessarily a member of specter it sounds like c was indeed or is indeed like a public servant who was so keen on doing this thing that he was like why yes i will enlist the help of this of this evil society yeah i mean It's, again, left under enough sort of implication that it's entirely possible that he's a civil servant that didn't even know he was, like, in bed with an evil society and was just taking money where he could find it. It comes out a little later that he probably did know where the money was coming from, but it's still left possible at this point that he's not actually, like, he's maybe unwittingly working for this organization. Mm -hmm. And this is where we get to the point that the movie just absolutely careens off the rails. (laughs) Yep. Because 
this is where we get the trailer line and the whole breakdown of what is actually going on here. And it starts with the, like, you came across me so many times that you never saw me. And he lays out the fact that, like, every adventure that Daniel Craig's Bond has had to this point was a construction of the Spectre organization. And Franz was at the top pulling the strings. And he gives this... The whole model, it's gross. Like, part of it is gross. He's like, did you ever wonder why all the women in your life die? Vesper, your precious M. No, I've, I've made it my mission to make sure that you're never happy. I am the architect of all your pain. And the reason, it, he gives this story about, like, cuckoos and, and how, like, do you know what happens when cuckoo lays its, its egg in another bird's nest? The baby cuckoo hatches and pushes all the other eggs out of the nest and takes the parent for its own. And we learn that Bond's guardianship was granted to Hans. Franz got jealous, felt like he had lost his dad to James, and that his dad cared more for James than cared for him. And so, in a fit of jealousy, killed him on the mountain and staged his own death so he could discard his past life as Franz Oberhauser and go on to spend the rest of his life ruining the life of James Bond, the man who usurped his dad. Yeah, it's really weird. It is. And I'm now I'm going to skip ahead because we're basically okay. at the, like, the actual events that are happening on screen right now are way less important than what the story is trying to do. Yeah, because he does a thing where he tries to show swan her dad killing himself and bond makes a big deal about like don't look at it and she doesn't you know she ends up not not watching it but like that moment takes like three minutes and then they like capture bond and they put him in a chair right <laughs> like that's the thing they put him in a torture chair and they're going to torture him and in the process of all this happening the reveal comes that he has discarded the name franz oberhauser and the man that bond sees before him today is none other than Ernst Stavro Blofeld. A name that, to this James Bond, is meaningless. Right. And to the movie's credit, to Daniel Craig's credit at least, he plays it like it is completely meaningless information. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't yeah. respond to it at all like daniel craig the character is not shocked by this at all and nor should he be the character should not be shocked by this this is meaningless information to bond this reveal exists only for the audience yeah complicating the fact that it's a reveal is this happened in a movie a mere few years before this one came out in star trek into darkness where benedict cumberbatch was cast in that movie and everybody was like He's playing Khan. And J.J. Abrams was like, no, God, no, he's not playing Khan. What are you talking about? He's playing a totally new original character that is definitely not Khan. And we absolutely do not have Khan in this movie. I don't know what you're talking about. And then the movie happened. And of course, halfway through the movie, it's revealed that he is Khan, a character that nobody in that movie has any reason to know. There is absolutely no purpose served by that character being Khan other than to make the audience go oh, he's con but it was the worst kept secret in hollywood at the time <laughs> and then this movie comes out and the movie's named specter mm -hmm. is about a secret organization and who the head of the secret organization named specter is and then they cast christoph waltz and they're like no no blofeld 
No, of course not. He is playing Franz Oberhauser, a totally new and original character that is unique to this film. And then in the trailers, they did the whole thing where like half of his face was in shadow. Yeah. Because of course, Blofeld has a scar on one of his eyes. And it's like, oh, who could it be? And then it comes to this reveal and it's like, I'm Blofeld. Okay. We knew that. That's not a surprise. It's not a surprise to the audience. Yeah. They had Christoph Waltz in interviews being like, no, 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 I'm not playing Blofeld. I'm playing a totally different guy. And everyone's like, we don't believe you. Yeah. And then, yeah. So here it was, this like big in-universe meaningless reveal that for the audience was like, oh. (laughs) Yeah. And the worst part is, the worst part of the storyline that they're doing here, actually it isn't the worst part, there's one additional layer of worse, but the second, the penultimate worse part of this storyline is that if they had just put the names in the other direction, they potentially could have had a reveal, right? Oh, yeah. If it was like, there's this guy Blofeld who leads this organization. We've never heard of him before. And then you get to this point in the movie and it's like, actually. Actually, that's my mother's name. Yeah. My real name is Franz Oberhauser. And you may remember me from such movies as your entire childhood. That potentially works, right? And you get the reveal. It's like, oh, actually, there's like a history there and so on. That would have been very interesting. You're right. Now, this is where we get to the ultimate worst. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) The ultimate worst is you may remember a conversation we had a few episodes ago talking about a an interview that Daniel Craig did Mm. where he said the Austin Powers movies effed us. Yes. Do you remember a major plot element of Austin Powers in Goldmember? (laughs) Right. That Austin Powers and Dr. Evil are, in fact, surprise brothers. Yeah. Do you know when Goldmember came out? Not offhand. Oh, heck, it was 2002. So that plot arrangement (laughs) predates this film by 13 years. And the movie has now vaulted over parody. (laughs) Because Bond and Blofeld now are surprise adoptive brothers. In canon. Yeah. To the extent these movies have canon. I just really don't like how bond-centric it is oh it's terrible small universe it's it's like the worst of the self-referential like this is the chosen one spider-man is spider-man because his dad tinkered with his dna before he was born kind of like you were the chosen destined one yeah it makes everything feel small it does james bond is ray star wars like the (laughs) it just doesn't it's all about him And not about the world that he lives in. It makes the world way less believable. It blows my mind that nobody on the writing team was like, hey guys, Austin Powers did this already. (laughs) And it was a joke. If you're curious, the cuckoo analogy that he's talking about is called brood parasitism. The way that a cuckoo reproduces is by laying its egg in another bird's nest and then piecing out so that the other bird has to raise its young. (laughs) And so the connection he's making here is that Bond is the cuckoo. At that meeting way back in Rome, he actually was like, cuckoo, which was a weird thing to say at the time, but this is now explaining it. So he's like, this Mm -hmm. is the little cuckoo. And like the cat, like Blofeld's cat is in this scene that we see for the first time. Before he reveals who he is. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, again, totally meaningless, except in the meta world of how everyone knows what Blofeld is. And then he drills into Bond's skull. Yep. And I, this is weird. This scene is just very strange. He's like, I'm going to drill into your skull. And then he does it. (laughs) Yeah, he succeeds. 
He succeeds in drilling into Bond's skull with a very small drill, but still big enough that it would hurt tremendously, which Bond reacts to hurting tremendously. Uh And then Blofeld is like, now, if I get this just right, I'm going to hit the part of your brain where you don't remember anybody's faces. So like you'll see people, but you won't know who they are. And won't that be awful? And it's like, dude, just kill him. What the, this is, (laughs) this is so effing weird. How does that thematically tie with this revenge you are trying to accomplish? Does he explain himself at some point? Not really. He talks about how like there was a period in time where when his faculties of sight and what have you, when he was like consumed with pain in that moment between life and death, his personality was just just ceased to exist. Like he was still alive, but was no longer there. And that that like inspired him to do the same thing to Bond, to like rob Bond of all of his mental faculties. Because the like the first probe, he's like, this will will mess with your sight and equilibrium. And then the second one is like, now we're going to take away your ability to remember faces and he succeeds <laughs> he drills bond in the head and succeeds and bond like walks it off <laughs> this whole torture scene makes no sense whatsoever swan comes over and is like no look at me don't forget who i am come on i love you and then true loves kiss they don't actually or do they kiss it doesn't matter but it's just like oh yeah okay cool also grab my watch Yeah, he says, I could never forget you. I could never forget you, uh, you, (laughs) uh, yeah, I want to say Gwen. (laughs) (laughs) I have to laugh. There was a Twitter thread that I think you and I got added in on that happened some weeks ago where some people were watching Spectre and somebody just referred them to us. And I went back and I looked at it. One of them was like, I actually kind of like this movie. It works especially well if you consider the fact that Bond just gets lobotomized in this scene and everything that happens after it is just the explosions of his consciousness as he drifts into death. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Because, like, the movie has, a, like, a nominally happy ending, <laughs> and everything that happens after this point is basically just a dream sequence. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Anyhow, Bond sets his watch alarm. This all happens. Bond sets his watch alarm. Madeline comes over, worried about him. Blofeld, now we can say it, asks, it's like, oh, does he still recognize you? Does he still know who you are? And, of course, he does. He says, take the watch. She does take the watch. He says, you have one minute. She doesn't really know what that means. Then she realizes what it means with five seconds left to go, and she pitches the watch over towards Blofeld, and it blows up. And this gives Bond the opportunity to break out of his chair with her help. And they take off running, and Blofeld is incapacitated on the floor. They make an escape. Bond finds a gun on a goon. He uses the gun to shoot a bunch of other goons, and there's a helicopter on a launch pad, or on a helipad, and so he shoots some goons over there, and then he shoots some explosive barrels. It's a pipeline, but they're basically explosive barrels around the compound, and that causes a bunch of chaos and explosions, and then as they approach the helicopter, the entire compound goes up in a huge ball of flame. A literally record-setting explosion. It's a huge ball of flame. As in, like, the Guinness World Record for largest movie stunt explosion ever. I believe it. Yeah. It took 33 kilos of powder and I'm going to switch to Imperial 2,224 gallons of kerosene. Wow. Holy moly. Why did the observatory explode? It's a telescope. Hydrogen fuel cells are very unstable. (laughs) 
So anyhow, they hop aboard the helicopter and they make their escape. And Bond is none the worse for wear, despite having been lobotomized twice in the last half hour. <laughs> we cut back to London and M, Tanner and Q are breaking into this bookshop called Hildebrand, Prints and Rarities. I love it. <laughs> I'm back on board again. <laughs> One of the few James Bond stories that has never had its name used as a Bond film is the Hildebrand rarity. So this is sort of a reference to that. The other ones, by the way, are The Property of a Lady, which was referenced in Octopussy, which we didn't call yeah. out at the time, Risico, and 007 in New York, which <laughs> I, I kind of hope after No Time to Die, the next one is just called 007 in New York. And it's like Bond takes Manhattan, right? Like it's just... <laughs> it's a musical. Yeah, exactly. I do like as they break in that Q says, I've never even heard of Hildebrand. He's like, well, good, then it's working because this, this is meant to be a safe house, right? <laughs> And so they're like, how safe, how safe do we really think this safe house is? And they open the door and see that Bond is inside. And M's like, it's safe. So Bond tells Tanner and Q to wait outside. And they're like, all right, so what are we going to do? We got to go stop. See, there's, there's still half an hour in this movie, by the way. I know. <laughs> they're like, hey, we got to go stop. C. we got to stop this thing from coming online. You know, let's, let's go take care of business. And they start like locking and loading with all their guns and Swan is watching and getting more and more uncomfortable. And so they head down to their cars and she's like, Hey, I, I gotta, I gotta go. This is too much for me. I, sorry, I can't do this. Goodbye. And Bond is like, I, I'm sad about that, but that makes sense. Okay, sure. So Q spends this whole act hacking on his laptop and <laughs> Q, Tanner, and Money Penny are in one vehicle, and Bond and Emma are in another. And they're in front, and they're driving through a tunnel, and they get absolutely sideswiped by this truck. And then goons come out and grab Bond and black bag him and throw him in the back of this big truck. And then they go back for M, and they find that M is just gone. And <laughs> Kathleen came into the room at that point and was like, Where did he go? How can M move that fast? And I was like, Well, he was in the SAS. <laughs> She's like, Oh, yeah, all right, sure. You just have to sort of accept that. Yeah. The three in the other truck pick M up and they head on over to the CNS building. Bond, meanwhile, with the black bag on his head, incapacitates the guys that have kidnapped him, takes their gun, takes the hood off, and finds that they've brought him to the MI6 building, Vauxhall Cross, that has been rigged with demolition explosives because they're going to tear the building down. Right. Now we have this back and forth between two different things of Bond in the old MI6 building and then across the Thames, C dealing with M and Q in the CNS building. And then, yeah, this is the scene where C gets very like high horse and is like, look, you don't have what it takes. You don't understand what needs to be done. And it's like, you were talking to the guy that sends people to kill men. Like, <laughs> have some perspective. Yeah. Bond is methodically moving through the MI6 building. He passes the like underwater place where there was that boat at the beginning of the one movie. And there's a boat that's still there for some reason. Different boat though. Different boat. Yeah. yeah. He passes through the shooting gallery and there's targets that have had Bond's face painted over them. He passes through the cells and there's just eight by tens stuck to the wall of Le Chief and Silva and Vesper and Mr. White and M and I still just hate this <laughs> especially like Silva was way more interesting when he wasn't working for Spectre yeah can you imagine Goldfinger is a Spectre member <laughs> Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. But that's what's happening here, right? Yeah. But you don't find that out until you only live twice. Right. Exactly. Yeah. When Blofeld and you only live twice, it's like, oh, and also my financier, Auric Goldfinger. Perhaps you heard of him. 
I was quite troubled when you put him out of my organization and out of a plane. <laughs> he put himself out of the plane, really. <laughs> Bond eventually finds Blofeld and he shoots at him, but there's bulletproof glass and the pattern of the bulletproof glass makes sort of a kind of an octopusy shape. It was not octopusy, an octopus-like shape. <laughs> It was used a lot in the marketing for the movie, the like yeah. octopus shape made of bullet holes in, in glass. So yeah, Blofeld's alive and he's there and he turns to look at Bond. He has this massive gash down the side of his face and his right eye is now blinded. And it's like, oh, it's the right Blofeld with the thing from... Okay, yeah, yeah, right. I recognize you now. The cat didn't tip me off. But now that you got the scar... Now that he has the scar, he's finally, finally, <laughs> at long last... <laughs> Uh, sometimes it's nice not to know the answers to everything sometimes it's nice <laughs> for blofeld to have had a scar and for you to not know how he got it right you don't have to answer every question what's your name son han <laughs> traveling alone han solo <laughs> so blofeld is like Oh, by the way, we've kidnapped Madeline Swan. She's also in the building. You've got a three-minute timer. Just fans of three-minute timers, I guess, or people in Bond movies. <laughs> and so you've got a choice now, you know, the same choice that you love to have. Either you can try to save her and both die, or you can escape and get away and leave her to die. Okay, bye. And he hits the button and leaves through a back entrance and Bond takes off running to try and find Madeline and save her. As he's running around, he notices that there's a big piece of netting across this like central column to stop construction rubble from falling on the people who were setting up these explosives. Blofeld and his goons get in a helicopter and they leave. Except they don't leave. They don't. They hang around for a while, don't they? Yeah, he sticks around to watch the building go up like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Q successfully stops the surveillance thing from coming online. C tries to fight M, which is a mistake because C is just a bureaucrat. M doesn't kill him, but C does end up falling hilariously backwards several flights down the center of the massive spiral ramp that we saw earlier in the movie. So C's dead. M is like, well, any word of where Bond is? And Moneypenny says, no, but I have a guess and turns around because the MI6 building is visible through the window and has like alarms going off. <laughs> and a helicopter hovering in front of it. Yes. Bond eventually finds his way up to where M's desk used to be, the center of that explosion, and hears some noises and finds Swan in the other room, like wrapped up in debt cord, which is needlessly <laughs> mean frees her from that but there's only like 40 seconds or something so he's like do you trust me you know like, don't really have a choice so here we go and picks her up and just jumps the like several stories down landing on that netting sort of like a safety net like at a circus and it bounces and stops their fall and then breaks and lets them out at the bottom and then they run further into the building rather than just out the front door and the building starts to go down all the explosions go off and then bond and swan fire out the front of the building onto the thames in a boat and <laughs> M and everyone else just sort of watches this like, oh, yeah, that there he goes. <laughs> and then Bond shoots at the helicopter and hits it. There's no reaction shot of inside the helicopter. Mm -hmm. And then he hits it again and nothing. And then he hits it a third time. And then there's a shot of Blofeld going, holy crap, are we being shot at? Like... <laughs> Like you wouldn't hear the first two. And then Bond centers himself and the music drops out and he goes with his gun and it goes tink right into one of the engines and sends the helicopter spiraling towards its death. Right. Crashes into one of the Thames's many bridges. I could look up which one this actually is, but I won't. Quick to the internet movie bridge database. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> 
The soundtrack names the song that plays over at Westminster Bridge. Yes, it is Westminster Bridge. You're right. I thought it was, but I didn't want to say it in case I was wrong, because I hate being wrong on the internet. All right. Well, undoubtedly, we'll find out from some internet comment that it is, in fact, some other bridge that they have used as a stand-in for the Westminster Bridge, and they just titled it that in the soundtrack. Well, it is actually a set. Ah, well, there we go. It's no bridge at all. That's not a bridge. That's a replica of a bridge. (laughs) Blofeld survives the crash and is dragging himself away from the wreckage. M tries to let himself through and a cop stops him. And he's like, I'm Mallory, head of the double O division or whatever. And the cop just sort of looks at him and <laughs> Mallory just stares dead at him until the guy's like, yeah, right. You can, yeah, sh- yeah, sure. Go ahead. You, you guys stand <laughs> down. Let this guy do whatever he needs to do. Bond gets to Blofeld first and aims a gun at him and Blofeld looks up at him saying, well, finish it. Finish what? What are we finishing? Finishing your destruction? What's the end? What do you mean finish it? Yeah. You wanted to kill Bond. Why is he trying to bait him into killing him? Thematically, this movie was never about Bond killing too many people or killing anybody. They are doing it specifically because they want to drive home M's thematic point about a license to kill is a license not to kill. And like they will deliver on that, but there's no reason narratively whatsoever for Blofeld to be like, do it, do it, shoot me. None at all. It's just there because it needs to be. Yeah. Shockingly, Bond decides not to do that. And he looks at, (laughs) speaking of thematic symbolism, at one end of the bridge is M and all the cops. And at the other end of the bridge is Swan. And so Bond leaves Blofeld alone, throws his gun away and walks towards Swan. And M and the cops come and collect Blofeld and Bond and Swan walk away into the night. And then there is a very brief scene of early morning in London with some very empty streets. And Bond arrives at Q's garage, much to Q's surprise. He's like, I thought you had left. And Bond says, ah, well, I had, but I need just one thing first. Then we get shots of the now completely rebuilt 1960s Aston Martin, which Bond and Madeline Swan drive away in into the sunset. Presumably sunrise, actually, because it's morning. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's the last James Bond film ever. Is how it seems. Yeah. The way that they play that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do like outside information, but we know from the trailers that Madeline Swan is back in the next movie. And so is the car. Oh, right. (laughs) I actually like I was looking at the trailer the other day for No Time to Die because it was like, all right, I've watched all the Bond movies. I'm ready for No Time to Die. Let's go watch the trailer again. I actually have some suspicions about which elements of the trailer are from what parts in the movie. I think most of the scene on the bridge in the trailer where like Bond is on the bridge and the the car is coming at him and he jumps off the bridge using the rope and swings and the bit with the car. I think that is the pre-title sequence. I'll be surprised if that's not the pre-title sequence. That makes sense. They like to use a lot of the pre-titles in the trailers because it looks good and it's sort of disconnected from the rest of the movie. Yeah. Also, it's not really a spoiler because it's like the first thing you see. Yeah. Anyhow, that's my guess from the trailer. Anyhow, back to this movie. Yeah. So what'd you think? It's so weird. I don't I don't know how to feel about it. This for me is the most difficult one to assess how I feel about it. Of yeah. all the ones that we've talked about. Because I remembered coming out of the theater and being like, oh, I did not enjoy that. Left a bad taste in my mouth. And then I started watching it again really recently last night. And I was like, this is actually sweet. This just this feels like a normal Bond movie. This feels like we finally got to have Daniel Craig doing a normal Bond movie. Okay. And then the last 45 minutes is just like, whoops, nothing makes sense. Yeah. 
I am perplexed by this film. I hope listeners at home understand what we mean when we talk about something being unearned. That when something happens in a movie because the writers or the directors decide that that's a thing they want to happen, not because it's something that has been established or built up properly in the movie prior to that moment. So this right. big reveal of Blofeld is because the producers were like, oh, we're going to have Blofeld back. We're going to have Christoph Waltz play him. And it'll be like, oh, surprise, it's Blofeld. Not because Bond has any reason to care about the name change. I did like that he's like, oh, it's from my mother's side, which again was like the plot kind of of OHMSS. Mm hmm. <laughs> was him like getting that name like the familial name approved or whatever but anyway i god i love your read of it that he was just blowfeld from the beginning and then was like actually i'm oberhauser that would have at least been more interesting but i still just really really dislike how much this shrinks the james bond universe right just the yeah. feeling of the world that it's like oh it's actually all about james bond i agree wholeheartedly like the last movie ended with this very personal thing with everything surrounding Skyfall. And then this is just, it's just more of that. And it's more looking into, you know, his past and his childhood. And then turns out that Blofeld, like the most iconic James Bond villain is actually his adoptive brother it's like uh-huh it makes him way less scary it makes blofeld less scary right like yeah i mean it's just it's very bad from both internal and external to the film it's very bad it is i'm gonna say it again i cannot believe it absolutely blows my mind that they went to a plot point that was used in an austin powers movie <laughs> first i had forgotten about that what were they thinking <laughs> <laughs> I how do you look at gold member and be like, huh, they were onto something. <laughs> <laughs> I just I don't get it. But you're a hundred it makes Blofeld less interesting, but it also makes him really petty. Not in like the endearing Bond way, but just in like a really like small man kind of way. Bond didn't even do anything wrong. <laughs> He was a yeah. like 12-year-old boy whose parents both died, and some rando mountain climber was like, sure, I'll take him in. I've got a son. They can be brothers. They'll get along great. And then like took this like wounded child under his wing and taught him how to survive in the world. Yeah, wait a minute. Bond literally didn't ask for this. Yeah, he did nothing wrong. He was granted a father figure by the state, and the man treated him like a father. <laughs> Right? Like, and it's just Blofeld was a crappy teenager who thought his dad didn't love him anymore through no doing of Bonds at all. <laughs> and what I mean when I say it makes him less scary is that it is a more frightening villain for this man to exist who has all this power and does these things because he craves power or wants to rule the world or wants to I mean it, yeah it is about power right yeah. not because he feels slighted by James Bond personally and like once you've built that enemy up you can do stories where he like you know, James Bond has been an authority in my side for 60 years, and every time I try to kill him, he catches me in the middle of a monologue and escapes my sharks with lasers on their heads and foils my plan, and now I want <laughs> to send an assassin after him. You can do that! 
<laughs> but the villain's got to be scary in his own right. The first two thirds of this movie are great. They are. It feels like such a normal Bond movie. There's comedy in the action scenes that doesn't undercut the scene entirely. There's cool characters. There's interesting stunts. <laughs> I even have come around on the like the car not having its own weapons enabled because I sort of ribbed it a bit for the movie as being like, we still have to undercut the gadgets. But that now, as I'm thinking about it, actually even reads like them ribbing themselves. <laughs> hmm. Where it was like, they wouldn't give him gadgets and now they've given him gadgets, but the gadgets don't work. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, we're, we're just having fun at our own expense at this point. Yeah. But yeah, man, does this movie go off the rails. <laughs> oh. They needed another writer. <laughs> to do another pass at the script they had four <laughs> oh dear all right well let's move into the rankings okay pre-title sequence i think it kind of rocks i like the one shot at the beginning i like the humor in the moment with the couch i like the chase through the crowd and i like the helicopter fight though i do not like a lot of the editing in the helicopter fight but that's not a deal breaker for me i think this is a pretty good pre-title sequence i'd agree with that i think it's exciting it's thrilling it frustrates me a little bit which is now a recurring theme with the craig era bond movies where it's like mm -hmm. i like so much but it just let me like you more but it's good i i think it's good i i even i think i know where it's gonna go already i think it's going sort of like upper middle for me yeah i think same same general area for me i know where this one lives for me and it lives between the spy who loved me and moonraker so it is worse than skyfall i think the opening to this one is not as good as the opening to skyfall i think i like the opening to the spy who loved me better for various reasons but i think it is a better opening title or pre-title sequence than Moonraker's. That's where I have decided to put it. Yeah, I was going to put this one a little lower initially, but I think you're right. I think I will actually put this actually in the same place. <laughs> so just between Moonraker and Live and Let Die for me. The title song, Writings on the Wall. I feel like I should listen to it again. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it, but it totally lacks impact. Where are you putting it, Matt? I am putting it below For Your Eyes Only and above License to Kill, which is my 15th position. It's fine. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it. I, I'm sort of waffling on whether it belongs above or below License to Kill. This song doesn't really stick with me at all. I think it's among the better ballad songs just by nature of it being more modern. And mm. so it has a more modern sensibility and consequently a more interesting musicality to it than most of them do. It is not at all iconic. It's just not. <laughs> no. There's nothing in this that stands out, but it's fine. It's inoffensive. For me, I'm going to put it on the other side of License to Kill, and I agree with all of your readings on it. So I'm actually putting it two spots lower than you. I just, They're I don't. not that far apart, but. No, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right at the beginning. Being a ballad does statistically predispose it to hit lower on my list. Yeah, now that you're looking at the color coding. <laughs> Based on the sample size, yeah. Yeah. But then apparently we're the ones who are wrong because we enjoyed Another Way to Die. <laughs> Which I will go to bat for. Yeah. So every me, single time. Me too. I'm, I'm glad we agreed because <laughs> judging by pure numbers, one of us shouldn't have liked it. It's true. I was worried that I was going to have to fight you on it actually i was immensely relieved that you were as as like <laughs> bullish bullish on it as you were um because i i have been like all in on that song since the movie came out and i i have on more than one occasion had people be like what really yeah. that song's yeah. not very good 
I was ready for fisticuffs, but it didn't come to that. <laughs> it turns out we were a tag team. I remember people not liking it when it was revealed before the movie and were like, ugh, ugh, I don't know, it sounds weird and different and crunchy. And ugh. I just assumed that people would have like softened on it in the in the intervening time, but I guess not. No, apparently people doubled down. Apparently people decided to hate it even more. Well, where are we at on the movie as a whole? Are we hating it even more? I don't know. I don't think I am, but I, I can't just like pretend that a big chunk of the movie isn't there. No. I mean, I can grant it some bonus points for a lot of the good things it does, right? So I can sort of nudge it. I can justify nudging it up my list a little bit on like the strength of some of the things that are in it. But man, the story is just dire. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, I'm in here with potentially a surprise placement for me. I, like, I'm looking at the movies that it's in the same ballpark as, and my gut instinct says I want to put it in a place, but that will upset my whole sense of identity. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm fighting myself on it. My yeah, gut says I want to put this behind the man with the golden gun and ahead of Quantum of Solace. Mm -hmm. But I have, again, we talked about this during Quantum of Solace, long bit of the opinion that Quantum of Solace is a better movie than it gets credit for and not nearly as bad as Spectre. And if Spectre comes in ahead of Quantum of Solace, I have to reevaluate my entire outlook on the world. The cognitive dissonance here is real and I need to find a way to mitigate it. I mean, it's definitely not as bad as Die Another Day. I am comfortable thinking that Spectre is better than Quantum. That's me anyway. It's not as bad as Die Another Day. It's not mean like Diamonds. It's not boring like Thunderball. I'm putting this one just above The World Is Not Enough. Okay. So it's in the bottom middle of my list at the moment. Because again... I I realized I had to basically come down on like, we're going to sit down and watch a Bond film. What am I going to want to watch? And I'm not going to want to just like sit down and jam through this movie. The parts of it that are good are like really great and <laughs> captivating, honestly. Like you really are like, dang, I'm really into this scene. But the end result just feels so hollow at the end. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> hollow is a really good word for it. It, it actually, this thought crossed my mind while I was watching it. And that like, this is the J.J. Abrams version of a Bond movie where it has like all of the trappings of a Bond movie and like is copying visual style and knows like these are the ingredients that you put in a Bond movie, right. but lacks any of the life or insight of an actual Bond movie. <laughs> right. It's just hollow. It is soulless. It's mostly the fault of that third act turn, but it just, the act, it never comes together in a satisfying way. It's just deeply, deeply unsatisfying employment of the mystery box to no effect. And so I think I'm putting it where I thought I was going to put it. I'm going with my gut. I am putting it in between the man with the golden gun and quantum of solace ahead of quantum of solace. The big thing that I think wins it over is that we get to see Daniel Craig be James Bond. We do, finally, after the long-promised teasing. Yeah, and, like, the movie is not a good example of, like, a classic Bond film, but we get to see Daniel Craig be charming and affable in places and funny and have range. <laughs> <laughs> and we got good characterization in Casino Royale, and I feel like we get the sort of like the payoff version of that here, where he's still that harder edged Bond, but his personality is coming out more, and he's like mm -hmm. able to have more fun, and he's found his sort of like footing as a double O. 
he's quippy in all the right ways. And so like that is all really, really good. And I like that. And I want more of it. And I, I wish they would do 10 more Bond movies with that particular Daniel Craig that showed up for this film. Yeah. I just wish they were like 10 better Bond movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, I'm fascinated to see what happens with what we can only assume is going to be indeed the last Daniel Craig Bond film. Yeah, they've said as much, like okay. actually this time. Daniel Craig has confirmed it and not in a like, I would rather end myself than do another one. But like, actually, no, like this is the last one he is doing. All right. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward so. to that in uh, April, I guess, unless something else happens. Yeah. That will be the next time that you hear from us officially on this podcast. Again, keep an eye on the Loading Ready Run Twitter account or in the Discord or our personal Twitter accounts, which we've never mentioned. I'm at Graham underscore LRR <laughs> and Matt is at Matt underscore LRR. And feel free to say hi, but keep an eye on there if we decide to do anything else. If you're subscribed to the podcast feed, if we throw something in the podcast feed, you will see it. If you are subscribed to our YouTube channel, you'll see stuff when it pops up there. So if anything unplanned occurs, you'll be able to find out about it. But the next thing planned is not going to be for several months yet when we take a look at No Time to Die when it finally sees release. But until then, that was Spectre and that was every official Bond film adaptation from Dr. No to now. I want to say thanks to Matt. This has been an absolute blast. And thank you for keeping on me to do it because something we talked about <laughs> And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Sure, let's do that at some point. And then you were like, so if we're going to do that, we need to start like now. And I really appreciate <laughs> you keeping on me about it. <laughs> well, thank you to you as well. Thank you for not telling me to go pound sand. <laughs> when, I, uh, when I continued to bring it up, it's not like you're not busy. So I appreciate you taking the time. I am looking forward to reclaiming some editing time out of this. But uh, yeah. it's, it's been a blast. I want to give a shout out, of course, to Featherweight for the art, all the wonderful changing art that he's been doing for the tabletops. He literally pinged me while recording this one, being like, yo, you need to tell me what we're doing for Skyfall, because otherwise <laughs> you won't have time before it comes out. So thank you, Featherweight. Big shout outs to Matt Griffiths, who has just <laughs> developed a, a wonderful language of editing over the course of these episodes, <laughs> doing the uh, doing the video versions. And thanks to Heather doing podcast admin for putting up with me going, um, well, rendering's taking a while, so it'll probably be in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately, thanks to all of you, everyone who uh, commented, even if you think that we're awful, terrible people, and for <laughs> hanging out in the Discord and chatting in friendly ways about Bond films in there. And for those of you who support us directly, either by becoming a member here on YouTube or our Patreon at patreon.com slash loading ready run. Couldn't do it without all of you. Anything you'd like to mention, Matt? Oh, you should go follow Matt's Twitch channel, hey? Oh, sure. That would be great. <laughs> I'd love it if you would. My Twitch channel, I, I stream at twitch.tv slash Wiggins, W-I-G-G-I-N-S, and I'm working my way through Kingdom Hearts. Oh, nice. At the time of airing. Time of recording, at least. I guess that's true. I, I will still be in the franchise okay. at the time of airing. <laughs> cool. So yeah, that is going to do it for Spectre and for this, uh, everything that we can make an episode of at the moment. That is going to do it for From Rewatch with Love. But until next time, this podcast will return. Mm -hmm.